0: meeting happy couples do you agree tucson
1: i do i do lots of uh good life skills there
0: yes I, I, you know now i wish we could talk about that during the show that would have been a fun show <laughs> the way There's his still face time. Up. that was adorable <laughs> Aww. Good morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good evening to the viewing audience across the pond. I'm Jason Miles, your host for another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, please like, subscribe, and if you're enjoying what you see, make sure to hit the notifications bell. We're constantly adding new episodes and doing cross streams with other channels like we do with our bi-monthly news show, Revolutionary Reckoning with David and Matt of Left Reckoning. We just did another one of those shows this past Thursday, and it was informative and fun. We discussed how the military is using its JROTC program to mandatorily enlist poor kids of color in urban area high schools, Canada, and its economic sanctions on specific government officials and private businessmen in Haiti, and the GOP's continued attempt in places like Texas to go against the will of the people and keep marijuana use illegal. And lastly, we discussed the Bureaucracy in housing for the unhoused. For patrons, we had our man on the streets in Latin America, Camilo Gomez, discussed the situation in Peru and Chile as well. If you'd like to see or hear these champagne rooms and sound off in the call-in segments, there's only one way. Become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. You can have access to these champagne rooms, past and present, and hang out with us for movie night. Also, you can be a part of the Mau Mau Hour live with Pascal Robert. Now, I have to introduce the headless, faceless voice of reason, M. Toussaint.
1: Hello, hello, everyone! Happy uh, Saturday.
0: Happy, I, I would say that, and I don't feel that mm. way until after we've concluded with the show.
1: Okay, you're holding, you're, uh, you're waiting to exhale.
0: Yeah, me and Whitney are waiting. Yeah, are waiting. Uh,
1: Still waiting.
0: I, d- I get so much anxiety on Saturday mornings. Oh, if you stress bunny, yeah. If you could see me running around this uh, this place like a chicken with my hand cut off before we uh, start the show. And then it's a it's a show with, you know, with Spencer Leonard.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think we have that to call him point. like that from now on. Or, or Pascal has to say it because he looks more like the black dude from Spencer for Hire than me.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> Avery Brooks. I believe is
1: his name. Avery Brooks. I don't know you. You might look more like Avery Brooks than Pascal. You think so? Maybe if you had a baby,
0: a the baby, beard. yeah. Like if I birthed a child,
1: yes. Weird, but you birthed a child. You wouldn't have twenty seven of them.
0: I maybe I would just love having them. Yeah. Okay. Be one of those people that just you know. Never wants to fit into my jeans. Speaking of jeans, <laughs> it's time for everyone's favorite East Coast merch pitch.
1: East Coast merch pitch.
0: Bring it up, bring it up, bring it up.
1: Gotta love it.
0: You gotta bring up Did the new thing. someone
1: hoodies. say I wish,
0: merch? I wish I had like hip hop music we could play right now. Like, <laughs> but I don't want to get the show pulled down. For playing, good. I'll 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 find a hip hop beat that I made. I did a song with uh Napoleon the Legend on my last Christmas record.
1: Yes, you did.
0: Play, I, should play that. I should play that. We wouldn't get pulled I think says
1: Christmas like
0: Napoleon.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> Do you, you not, the, you're
0: not? You're not. You're not doing the pitch. You're not. Uh...
1: We got snapbacks, you guys. <laughs> Son, we got your snapbacks. Got you covered. Uh, we got hoodies who? Different colors.
0: Different colors. You're welcome.
1: With... <laughs> <laughs> Pay attention. Put your Tims on. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: I feel like that's how all New York public schools are.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, a, it's a
0: series of teachers yelling to put your Tims on to the students. Get it. Jimmy, put your Tims on. <laughs> Jimmy, put your Tibbs on. <laughs> and also oh we God. have to, we <laughs> that's that's until New York proves otherwise. Look, I'm gonna be in New York. I think we're gonna get there like Friday or something. Um, if someone wants to invite me to a New York public school to prove this, this theory oh. wrong, this is what I'm gonna believe, and this is what I'm gonna tell my children.
1: Don't take any condoms from the New York City public schools. I think they're trying to make new students. (laughs) Just a word to the wise there.
0: You know, this man is not a product of New York public
2: schools.
0: (laughs) Please welcome... The Avery Brooks of the T I R universe. Everybody's favorite Haitian. Pascal Robert.
3: Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, to Jason Miles. The banter, the pre-show banter between you guys, man, it's really uh, <laughs> it's interesting.
1: <laughs> it's interesting.
0: Hey. We have to keep the show interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. This is
0: going to be a very this is going to be a very dense show today. Spencer came on. Was it two months ago? It doesn't even feel like it was two months ago. Was it two months ago?
3: Right. Fanon the, 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 the reboot. Of the Fanon show.
0: No, it wasn't a reboot. No, it was
3: no. It was a reboot. I see re- reboot because it was Fanon 2.0. We had oh, oh 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 yeah 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 yeah. It, it people got real kind of
0: hyped in the comments there was definitely a lot of yeah. polarization when this man comes on for such a nice man <laughs> <laughs> he has such a pleasant talk <laughs> you 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 meet him and you get to know him he uh, doesn't seem like a polarizing figure but man on the internet he uh, he really stirs the pot so to
3: speak uh
0: and not on. marijuana. No, no. <laughs> I, well, with Spencer, I don't know. I wouldn't put it past him. I, I don't know if he's passing any <laughs> drug tests. He, he, <laughs> he's an OG, so you can't put anything past.
1: <laughs> he specifically requested no drug tests.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah don't, don't cross a border with Spencer. You're going to get into some trouble. <laughs> One of them cats that looks at you, hey man, swallow this real quick.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you may see some weird shit. But I just need you to swallow this real quick. I got a warrant. Oh um, my God. That's, that's never happened. Poor happening. man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we came on, before we even brought Spencer on, we were watching a new commercial. And I, I do have to address this before we bring Spencer on. Because I actually want to hear his opinion about it too. We watched. Uh, Kendrick Lamar's Cash App commercial Mm. Tucson what was your take on it
1: I didn't understand The visuals (laughs) What they were trying to say In the visual storytelling Mm -hmm. Uh, In a way it made sense Kendrick Lamar in the middle But his feet are up But he's like basically camouflaging in with the background I didn't understand where, Where they were going with that
0: Pascal was very upset by the one minute actual
1: points. content
0: It I fast forwarded through the first 30 seconds of it because it was just nonsense
3: I don't know man. he's I translating mean,
0: I, I, look at Pascal's face right now he looks like somebody f- farted in his suit I mean that's how mad he was <laughs>
1: wow well, what was your take on it Pascal <laughs>
3: I said that uh, Kendrick DeMall looked like he was an intermediary slave trader. Mmm! Get your hand off my penis! Damn. Ouch. <laughs> Damn.
0: And why do you say that?
3: Because if you look at the whole way the, the commercial is set up, you have, you know, this urban youth who is speaking in colloquialism, Ebonics, or whatever, African-American yeah. vernacular, about a business transaction that he's engaging in. And you have Kendrick Lamar is translating what the the urban youth is saying to proper English to a white capitalist, venture capitalist type. And he's kind of telling the guy, well, this is what you need to do. And then he's going back to the urban youth and translating back to him. I was like, this image is just like, I I see like an African shore and like a rival tribesmen with like, you know, you know capturing mm. like you know a captive from a rabble <laughs> <tribe. Nobody laughs> like but well, listen this is what you're gonna have Damn. to do I'm gonna pick this many bales of cotton in a week and Damn.
0: wow but wasn't Kendrick Lamar supposed to lead us to freedom with his music
3: man I never bought into that but he he was uh marketed as some kind of uh embodiment of the millennial angst of uh you know whatever black lives matter
0: remember his grammy was it the grammys uh tucson that he did where he had like people and chains and all kinds of shit and everyone was talking about how moving the uh, performance was
1: sounds right
0: do do you remember that i'm
1: not a kendrick fan actually
0: but i (laughs) vaguely
1: remember that i know it's like illegal to say that
0: I thought it was part of being black. Like when you're born, you get uh, some sort of a hood card and then a Kendrick mm-hmm. Lamar CD uh regardless of when you're born, a Public Enemy shirt. I have mine.
1: I know he's kid tested mother approved, but
0: You call him the Man, kicks of hip hop?
1: Yeah. Damn. He's the kicks of hip hop. He's wholesome. I mean Which means he still says, you know, bitches and hoes, but he's conscious about it.
0: Is everyone trying to be like Tupac was in the 90s, kind of the only person to literally have these two big hip-hop hits with I Get Around and Dear Mama, where it's like, um, I'm showing you this kind of stereotypical rapper, um, chauvinistic side that you're attracted to, but now I'm showing you this vulnerable side. Um that makes me a three-dimensional person. Is that kind of yes. the the um moving forward? Is that is that the program for for hip hop to be, try to be a successful rapper? Because it feels like after he died, everybody wanted to have the bitches and hoes songs that, that get you popularity and get you in the clubs mm-hmm. and everything. And then you have to have this very deep cut about how much you love your your mother or something like that. But, but it's not your baby's the- mother not your baby's mother because fuck your her your mother but your mother yeah
3: yes i don't necessarily um, think it all has to be that deep i mean we got drill rap we got all kinds of us all kinds of just like trap music there's all kinds of just very anti-social hip-hop it still does very well without any deep meaning but they See, love it. i disagree
1: all. with that because the biggie formula is still in effect too and the person who has used the biggie formula, which is, you gotta have your songs for the ladies, you know, your big papa, whatever, um, and then your gangster songs for the dudes in the hood. Um, that's the biggie formula, and Mr. Drake, mm. Aubrey Graham, has used that to great effect. He's the he's the embodiment of that.
3: Is Drake the most successful rapper? Can we be called? Can Drake be called a rapper? Between Drake and Kanye I believe
1: Drake is more successful than the Beatles. Is that a fact? Not, How many not records mistaken. did
0: the Beatles have? Yeah, think about it. The Beatles have what? Mm-hmm. A small handful of records. They only lasted for a few years. Yeah. They're done by was it 69 70? Nice. Drake stuck came out. When did Drake come on the scene? 2003
3: Drake, mm-hmm. Drake came out in
0: 2000, 2007 2008. No. no I was, no
3: was president when Drake came out. I no, that.
0: Drake's been no. around for a minute.
3: That's well, when he was, you heard about Drake.
0: That's when yeah,
3: that's when young old ass.
1: <laughs> that's when Drake hit your fraternity.
0: Yeah, Drake is a, Drake is not a young man.
3: Well, he, uh, are we talking about musical Drake or are we talking about the actor-entertainer Drake? Because he was doing... Musical
0: you know. Drake has had songs since the early 2000s.
1: Actor-entertainer Drake is musical Drake. It's a role he's playing. Yep. He's doing it very well.
0: Yep. Very well. Very well. But all this is because Kendrick Lamar did a commercial for a company that I worked for. <laughs> <laughs> Can we show that, Marshall? uh, I think so. Someone says a Jason's a confirmed movie. Degrassi enthusiast. I love the first Degrassi, uh, I watched the kids from Degrassi Street Street Greet Street, street <laughs> and Degrassi Junior High and Degrassi High because I was always in shock about what that show showed from teenage suicide to teenage pregnancy to interracial mm-hmm. relationships in the 80s and in Canada. It's like um, true. Toussaint, be entertaining for a second with Pascal while I pull this up.
1: Be entertaining with Pascal. How's your day going, Pascal?
3: So far, so good. I'm looking forward to the show with Spencer. I have some interesting, well, I don't know if they're interesting, but I have some questions I wanted to have with him about Marx (laughs) journalism and Marx overall and Marx's significance, so... I'm looking forward to that. How are how was your holiday season? My holiday yeah, season was so good. I no, was two oh, bands away from getting. Oh, oh is that a background noise? That Sorry, was that's commercial. me I'm pulling,
0: I'm pulling it up. Yeah, it's it's so it's so stereotypical that it just slaps you in the face with uh, niggerdery.
3: Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised how many people love the crap. No my brother. <laughs> no my <laughs> brother? Okay, here it
0: here we go. Here.
3: Bro, whole barbershop, bro. Yeah. Oh my mama, bro. peanut gonna call my phone talking about I just got paid. I looked at the phone. You just got paid. What? Where the dice at? I'm ready to shoot. We can roll. Last time I shot with it, thirteen hundred in my pocket. Easy. Off top. Off top. Easy. So what happened. What happened? man, Peanut is what happened. Had me hot on my mama, hot. Seven, 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 seven. Back to back to back to back. Bro, I was mad. He was in, bro. He was all in my bag, in my pockets, in my whole duffy. I was ready to get out. Basically what he is saying, he saved up his money to get a local barber shop. He then made a friendly business wager with Peanut in hopes to secure more money for his business, but eventually losing
0: Is a dice game a friendly business wager? That's that's literally like saying uh, he saved his money and then went to Vegas and bet it all on the table. stable. Is, am I wrong there?
1: I had no idea dudes were passionate about throwing dice.
0: I've never met, I've never met anyone that passionate about throwing dice. I, as a person that has shot dice since I was nine, since so moved to Richmond, California. Um, never been that passionate about it. Seen some ass whoopings over it. Yes. Oof.
1: But it seemed like a thing to do. Not a thing you're passionate about planning to do with your money. Like, what?
0: I don't know anyone. Look, Pascal, Toussaint. I'll even throw Spencer in here. I don't know exactly where Spencer's from, but I'm sure he knows somebody that has a small business. I don't care what color you are. If you're about to do something with your money, like buy a barber shop, and I've known a few barbershop owners in my life, the last thing you're going to
3: do, waste that money on a dice game. Usually the guy who's buying the barbershop is not the guy who likes to play dice.
0: Exactly. Now, you may play dice in the barbershop,
3: oof
0: now i told you i you know that movie oh what's that movie with the with the samuel jackson plays him and the real man is much shorter coach carter Mm -hmm. coach carter had a barbershop in richmond where i'm from that's where i got my hair cut now a lot of shit happened at that barbershop Not bad. maybe maybe an occasional dice game (laughs) maybe some of the barbers were pimps (laughs) maybe but the last thing that King Carter was about to do was take that money and then go blow it in Vegas. So this this uh, th- this whole premise to me,,
3: yeah. it's like, who wrote that?
1: And like, why is he huddled up on a <laughs> chair that's the same color as the wall, sitting in between these two dudes who don't have chairs? I, don't, I understand it's supposed to be like a metaphor. It's just really, it's
3: really weird. Metaphor for an auction block. Ooh. Damn. Ooh.
0: Damn. Here, let's, let's, we have to see when the, when the, the white guy stutters a lot because I think he's uncomfortable because even he knows this is
2: racist. One yes. roll <laughs> on a dice. dice. Right what, what you're I think volatility is his problem, and I don't think he understands how to compound his talent and how to compound his money. What I mean is, if you just take big bets like that, you'll blow it all. You can, you should invest in yourself, man, and then you learn more. And then when you learn more, you also make more money, and it compounds. You could have two barbers. I told I think, you,
3: man, it gives us slave auction vibes, man. But I was talking.
0: Go ahead.
1: He's, he's talking directly to the black guy, but Lamar Kendrick is going to translate anyway. <laughs> I don't understand. This dude is nodding his head because he understands what the white man is saying. And the white dude put on a little bit of a hood accent because he wants to be understood as well. And why is he is he going fishing? What is this? After? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know.
0: I'm I'm trying to figure like what you said is extremely true. Why does Kendrick have to translate when the dude totally understands English? And mm-hmm. I think he did bet on himself. That's why he went to the fucking dice game, asshole. So maybe we need to find a better uh, metaphor. I mean, that's when mm-hmm. I go to Vegas. I'm betting on myself.
1: <laughs> that's just some neoliberal grind set, sigma grind set foolishness. Betting
0: it's, on yourself. It's, this is a, again, I'm shocked because I worked for the marketing, I did contract work for the marketing department of this company. And I remember we were at the, the last Coachella I did. There was more black cats than there had ever been. <laughs> <laughs> and we we were from different areas but we were all telling stories about where we were from. Not overly hood stories, just we're just talking about shit that you would talk about if you were in a room full of colored people. And all in white people walked out.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the fact that someone greenlit this, I'm like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> <I
1: don't> Who <know. sighs> where where are they? And for Kendrick to break the fourth wall, it's like we're we're Wiley e. Coyote, who just <laughs> ran off the mountain, and we're just like standing in space. This is just some things don't make sense here.
0: I, I can't believe this is real. I'm I'm literally in shock. Hold on, we have to finish this.
2: You could have ten businesses if you if you know how to compound, basically. Bro,
3: what he's saying is slow money wins the race. You can still have a big upside even if you don't throw all your chips in the bag. Mm. Invest in yourself. Leave them dice alone. You don't need to invest in the dice. That's going to ruin everything. Spread your money out. Let it build for yourself and work gradually, slowly. Anybody that's ever made a lot of money, they make it fast. You feel me? Feel yeah. you. Off top. P.G. Lang. That's,
0: that's not true, Kendrick. You made that up.
3: Uh,
1: I don't even look. Life coach Chen- Kendrick is not, he's not who I would go with personally. No, don't invest in the dice. What does that even mean?
0: I don't know, but my dad used to tell me about how he would like sand dice down on one side.
1: <laughs> what? Your dad's a cheater. They guys.
0: My dad is a I, dude. My dad a lot of fun. That's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fun. He lived a life. He's a character. Yes, to say the least, my dad is a is a character. But Pascal, I think maybe the people would like you to write something about this.
3: What about the Kendrick Lamar commercial, mm-hmm. or black capitalism overall.
0: All of it. Kevin Reeves says PG Lang is Kendrick's ad group. He made it. Wait a minute. That's what he shouts out at the end is his ad group company? Wow. Mm. JG Wentworth, what's up? (laughs) JG (laughs) Wentworth, Holla. Ford Models, holla. Jesus Christ. Oh my Lord. You Marxists are hating because you can't deal with Nike through hanging out <laughs> with <Yadolf. laughs> Yay Yadol. Wow. Y'all should read more codes. <laughs> he'll set you free. <laughs> he'll relieve you from that metal mindset.
3: What, what the hell is? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I believe that's
1: our friend from Mozambique. <laughs>
0: we need to uh, we need to send that to Adolf and be like, your new name in the, these streets is Yadolf
3: Reed. Like Yolof Rice, Yadolf Reed. <laughs> 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 like Yadolf, you want some Yolof? <laughs> God. Y'all need to stop reading
1: that Yadolf Reed. <laughs> Told you kids about reading that yet all <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh my God. Everybody's all mad about Dave Chappelle and, and Elon Musk, but I'm mad at Kendrick Lamar and <laughs> this goddamn commercial.
3: Yep. Elon Musk has everyone on Twitter upset. I'm like, yo, really? But I went onto still- Twitter
1: and it said I had no home feed. I had no timeline. Everything was gone.
3: Elon almost blocked you. Yeah.
1: I didn't say anything about him.
0: Does anyone remember, Does anyone remember the Twitter fail whale? Oh I like that, that
1: whale.
0: Oh, yeah. See, everybody forgets the fail whale. When Twitter would go down, they used to have this thing, the site. You'd go to the site and it'd be a whale. It's like, oh, something's wrong. Fail yeah, well. whale. Fail whale. doesn't really come up anymore. Because they, uh, they have really good infrastructure there. It's all the H 1B Visa people that are there with pretty much a f- economic gun to their head. They <laughs> can't leave. And there's a lot of layoffs in tech right now. So if you got a job at Twitter, you're not pushing back. I mean, it's still Twitter. Pascal, stop reading.
3: What do they pay reading. at Twitter?
0: A lot, a lot. Yeah, because they live in the city. Yeah, you live in the city. The San Francisco is one of the most expensive places to live in the country. You think those mfers are commuting from you know Concord or Antioch?
1: Concord.
0: Nope. That's Bay Area speak for the hinterlands.
1: Oh, okay. Learning so much
0: before we I want to start. know
1: what Spencer thinks about it.
0: I want to know, you know, what let's bring in Spencer right now. I have an introduction, but I'm just going to say it when we bring him on air because this poor man's been in the green room forever. If we had a real show, he'd be liquored up. So, uh-huh. <laughs> for Saturdays, what we have to start doing we have to start getting alcohol delivered to the guests.
1: <laughs> so,
0: when they're in the virtual green room for 29 minutes, they can just be, you know. Sauced up, sauced
3: up, yeah. It's it's
2: come on down. How are you? Great. How are you guys? I was going to say that these, you know, what the what the people at home don't understand is that you're you're looking at my face, reacting to all the crazy shit that you say, and just <laughs> you up. You're like, oh, let me get him to put his head in his hands. In. <laughs>
0: not lying <laughs> <laughs> oh he's not lying that's what's funny spencer you heard that commercial i i, I want to hear your opinion
2: i mean i think you know that you know, the, the the tell is you know what what in toussaint pointed out you know which is that you know the the supposedly you know incomprehensible you know black kid black entrepreneur understands you know the language of money perfectly um you know, he understands the banker who wants to invest or whatever perfectly you know it's it's also that you know no matter how ridiculous like the way you talk is you know and i think you know the, the stand-up is you know really you know that you know the banker's bullshit, right you know mm-hmm compound yourself or whatever, <laughs>
1: whole,
2: you know, I don't know what, you know, do you learn that in B school or where do you learn how to talk like that? Um, <laughs> you know, that no matter how, you know, it's, you know, it, it, it's even in a sense more isolated than the hood, mm-hmm. right? You're just in a bubble, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, of course, money, money breaks down all boundaries. Or really goes, you know, beneath all boundaries. It's a universal language.
0: Well, well.
1: Good take.
0: Pascal is so. I've Pascal. I'm sorry. I'm not going to do this to you anymore because you, you <laughs> your face has not unclenched. My face the is the same it
3: Always is. It's always this way.
0: No, it's it's <laughs> a permanent soup fart face. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, it is a little. A
3: little base. Yeah, it's bad.
1: The, commercial we a was upset. Ridiculous. <laughs>
3: the commercial was <laughs> ridiculous, man. It was absolutely absurd.
1: I agree.
0: When when Robert is hella mad and and the fingers get like this, and he and he gets back in a chair, you finna get it. <laughs> <laughs> you are finna get it. So whatever he ends up I think I think this is gonna inspire you to write something, no?
3: I'm Kendrick Lamar, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't get, I didn't ask for a record review. I mean, <laughs>
1: that was an eye roll. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whoa.
3: Spencer, I had some questions I wanted to ask you about Marx, actually.
0: <laughs> well, hold on. I wrote this whole introduction. Pascal's roaring so, to go here, Jason. Pascal, do you read the introduction?
3: No, hold on. I, I have the introduction in front of I know here. you
0: have the introduction because I sent it to everybody but Spencer because we always want to surprise him.
3: Hold on. See, I'm
0: not I was not ready yet. Oh, yeah, you want to talk all that big shit and all of a sudden you're not ready. See, see, Spencer, see what I have to deal with. Go this ahead, is what happens do. when you have I Alan Iverson as your co host. <laughs> Talking about show notes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We're not talking about the show I love. We're talking about show notes. <laughs>
0: Can someone make a picture of Pascal as Alan Iverson on the podium <sighs> yelling about show notes like they did with Cuba? Because
3: that was hilarious.
0: Are you ready to read the introduction?
3: Yeah, I got him now. Okay. Wait, you read them, man, because I'm already already confused about the first sentence.
0: After (laughs)
1: all that.
3: New York Tribune managing
0: editor uh, wrote uh, this is one of his reporters, uh, Karl Marx, in Karl Marx's obituary. On Thursday, died almost unnoticed. A man who was likely to be remembered quite as long as any of the generals, statesmen, and diplomatists whose recent disappearance from the stage of public life has been widely chronicled. The socialist movement of our time is a phenomenon too vast and imposing to be inseparably associated with the name and achievement of any individual reformer. For its fundamental impulse and general direction, we must look to the central laws and inherent imperfections of our social system. But if the title of prophet and protagonist belongs to any of its promoters, it would by common consent of all, intelligent observers, be awarded to Karl Marx. Others, like Bakunin, diverted for a time the attention and confidence of part of the European proletariat, or, like LaSalle, played for a brief season a more brilliant part. But in him, sooner or later, working men throughout the world recognized their authentic guide and veritable commander. Karl Marx is dead. But the work to which he gave his life survives him in the respect commanded by the claims of labor, in the hope which he imparted in the spirit of unity and organization which he substituted for aimless, discordant, and abortive struggle. He was by no means a vain or self-assertive man, but he might with perfect truth have uttered the vaunt ascribed to Ferdinand LaSalle that he came to the discussion of social problems armed with all the learning of his time. Today, we'll be talking about Karl Marx as a journalist with a man that has forgotten more about Karl Marx than everyone on this panel will ever know. In his books about Karl Marx and Engels as a journalist, he goes in-depth on another facet of, of the mind of Marx. Please welcome author and professor, friend of show, Spencer Leonard.
2: Thanks. That was a great introduction. Isn't that a great quote?
0: I was very moved by that. I, it took me a while just to read through the introduction because there's a lot of things that I read multiple times. There's definitely things that I'm going to take for um, this uh, this documentary that I'm making. So I want to and thank
2: that, you. you know, and that dumbass. Uh, I mean, he becomes an ass. He becomes a dumbass. Uh, Charles Anderson Dana. Mm-hmm. He supported Horace Greeley against Ulysses S. Grant in 1872. You know, wow. they were they were upset about Grant. You know, putting down the KKK, Um, you know, (laughs) even though he'd been a radical Republican, Um, you know, in other words, he becomes like he goes off the rails. And that was from like well down that road. Really? Uh, Yeah. Uh, But he still like manages that. Um, Yeah, I, I thought that that was really great you know I, mean, I guess he's you know it's his youthful self like mm-hmm. he's you know, he's he's thinking back you know i met this guy back in cologne in 1848 there was a revolution mm-hmm. he's the man
0: do you think that's kind of how a lot of his contemporaries viewed him as this kind of intellectual heavyweight from this very uh march time yeah
2: oh no doubt um you know, there. I believe it's Bruno Bauer, uh, who is a young Hegelian, has a great you know remark where he's, you know, there's this young Hegelian movement that Marx and Engels are a part of in their youth, mm-hmm. and Marx and Engels are the young guys, right? The the rest are like eight, ten more years uh, their senior, and one of them. Who was a communist uh, named Bruno Bauer, big, you know, important influence on Marx, eventually turns on him. Uh, some of you may, some people may know his uh, review of Bauer's writing on the Jewish question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Bauer says, like, just, I forget who he's writing to. And he says, you know, there's this guy, it's like, um, you know, if, Denis Diderot and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and, you know, know, basically all the figures of the French Enlightenment, Kant and Hegel, were Mm -hmm. like walking amongst us. Mm -hmm. It's a punk kid, Karl Marx. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you obviously, you know, the man, you know, I mean, obviously, Karl Marx was a genius. Uh, They know, all geniuses aren't right or wrong necessarily. But, you know, I, I think that was pretty widely recognized. He was also an asshole and all sorts of <laughs> uh, you know, prickly character. But um, yeah, I, I think that. Um, I mean, Anderson, Charles Anderson, Dana, the man who wrote that quote, who mm-hmm. was his, who was really the guy that Marx worked with uh, in New York City at, at this uh, newspaper where the he wrote a lot of the, the journalism that I've edited. Um, you know, I mean, he was reading it, you know, I mean, he was reading this copy that was coming in, you know, off the boat, mm. uh, it was just before the telegraph. Um, I don't think Marx ever submitted anything by telegraph. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> that's I insane. Mean, there, there were telegraphs, but you know, not, you know, it was too expensive. Um, so the, you know, Marx's contributions were always like a couple of weeks, you know, out of date you know the news from europe was always you know on a delay in the u.s at that time uh you know but this guy's editing him you know and you know there's some people who can fucking write <laughs> you know and when you're an editor you learn to appreciate that um and you know marx was um learning English on the fly.
0: That was also fascinating that when Engels told him, hey, you got to learn English if you if you really want to get the word out. And this is a time for them where they're in exile as well. Why this period of Marx's life? Why is this so interesting to you that you wrote multiple volumes
2: on this period in his life? And I'll take my answer off there. Um, well, I mean, you know, we could talk like very broadly. You know, obviously this is just a, a contribution to um you know the study of marx uh it couldn't stand in for uh you know the other writings of marx for instance um uh, and marx's journalism of course it, you know what i mean by it is his journalism for essentially hostile or non you know, not necessarily hostile, but commercial. He's getting paid, and he's not in control of the editorial line, right? Um, he wrote a lot of journalism where he himself is the editor, and you know that was his first job. He was you know made the editor of a of a newspaper in Cologne, and he wrote uh, essentially as a liberal in 1842, 43 uh, in in Cologne. Uh, and you know, he wrote in the Revolution of 1848. He was a revolutionary journalist, and his newspaper was extremely important uh, in that Revolution. And you know, he was a major kind of agitator, revolutionary, like um, I don't know what you know, Tom Paine uh, in the American Revolution, or uh, Jean Paul Marat in the French Revolution. You know, those were his. You know, and they talk about. Those as precursors, he and Ingalls. Uh, So, why is it important? You know, basically, what I'm trying to do is to say that Marx is political, down to his bone, all the time. There, there's not a social theory Marx. There's not a sociology Marx or an economics Marx. Marx is a revolutionary writer, uh, political writer, and in particular, you know, he's interested in, um, you know, the the course of and you know and pushing the course uh, through critique of socialist revolution to to take power uh, for the working class to take power throughout his life, and that you know. This is especially, um, you know, that his interest in politics and his critique of politics and his critique of democracy uh, really deepens coming out of his experience of, you know, the first revolution in which socialism was a significant part, uh, the revolution of 1848. And, you know, that flows through all of his work, including capital, right, including, um, you know, you know, so it, it's and it's not just like he wrote. You know, the 18th Brumaire that maybe some people are familiar with, and then 20 years later, he he wrote. You know, he wrote a kind of coda about the 1848 Revolution. Then he wrote about uh, the Paris Commune. He's writing about politics uh, his entire life, and and even the critique of political economy uh, is a part of his thinking about capital's politics, um, and, you know, what the course and object of the socialist workers movement is, uh, you know, which for him, you know, isn't like abolishing the commodity form or something like that. I mean, that's, you know, would be socialism, but his goal is, uh um, what he calls the dictatorship of the proletariat which is that you know the the seizure of power by the working class by the organized working class um and he he does that in because he thinks that um the problem of capitalism has to be addressed fundamentally through politics so there's a social issue that has to be addressed and is being addressed it through politics it's addressed in capitalism through the capitalist state and it can be it can only be addressed fundamentally uh, through a proletarian state So that's like that's what that's what these writings are about, is to sort of put the political marks front and center and to say, you know, this is this is a a red thread.
3: I wanted to ask you a question because I want to get straight to the choice in this in this current particular moment. There has been a revival of a text that was published about 30, 35 years ago by uh, the academic, I'm sure you're familiar with him, Cedric Robinson, it's called Black Marxism. I'm sure you've heard of the text, you're familiar with it, it's become very popular. In that text, he kind of posits the argument that Marx has a limited understanding of race and racism and issues of race overall. Some even question whether or not that, art, that, that piece was an anti-Marxist sect, others deny that. And from that term comes the concept of racial capitalism. From your understanding of Marx, particularly his journalism, and I understand Marx wrote thoroughly on the Civil War, how do you respond to the argument that Marx had a deficient understanding of race, racism, or the role of race in capitalism? And how would you respond to those charges by those who are fans of uh, Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism that we you, you need to use a term like racial capitalism to highlight that distinction?
2: Yeah. um, You know, I just throw in also that, um, you know, including on the basis of these writings um, that I've edited, you know, Marx will also be accused of being Eurocentric, right? That's another Um, thing, Right, that he will be viewed as, you know, inadequate on the imperialism question. And, you know, what I would say is this, Pascal, um, for Marx, there is, and I think this is the deficiency of, you know, a lot of this kind of talk, is that Marx takes for granted that there's an ongoing uh, bourgeois revolution, right? That there's an ongoing revolt of the third estate, um, that there's a a revolution that's in crisis and then it renews itself, you know, through, you know, in other words, bourgeois society is entered into crisis in capitalism. And it tries to renew itself by renewing the bourgeois revolution. And what that will look like is a demand for workers' rights. It will look like a demand for free labor it will look like a demand for uh, pr- potentially even a demand for uh jobs etc and you know so marx is taking for granted that there is a project that in its own terms is against slavery is against racism or any form of particularism that is for pacified global, social, you know, political relations that is anti-war, uh, that seeks world peace, etc. cetera, right? A lot of these arguments that you'll find essentially have to claim that the, um, the modern revolution isn't against slavery, isn't against racism isn't against colonialism and you know i i think that that's false um i think you know i write about you know the case of india uh and the east india company and you know i can tell you it's a very constitutive part of the enlightenment uh, the criticism of british colonialism in india uh, it's at the heart, it's, I would say, it's the driving animus of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Um, and, you know, there would be many others like the Abbe Raynal, I mean, who, who also wrote about the black Spartacus, right, uh, in, in the Caribbean. And so I think that, you know, people, you know, I, mean, I, I think a lot of times, you know, and I would also say, of course, you know, the left today is just racist. Right, the left today really believes that people are different. Right. And the left today, you know, is uh anti-Marxist. I <laughs> mean, and you know, I, I think that uh, you know, their all of their criticisms of the Enlightenment and Eurocentrism, etc., you know, they really are about, you know, saying we want capitalism, not socialism. Um,
0: is 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 that is that hmm. It's interesting that you say that. So Does that mean that maybe these texts like, uh, black Marxism, um, and, and even some of the, uh, was it the Kamba He, uh, Uh, sure. Uh, does that mean that those (laughs) become kind of the quote unquote winning texts for the left? It's all about intersectionality and, and race and, and, uh, Mark's yeah I, old white man that uh didn't get the race question
2: i mean like when when you're you know i'm obvious i i i know you you guys um were kind enough to read some of the things i sent you and you know one of the points that i made in the a point that i made in the second introduction to the second volume of the forthcoming books is that you know marx is inextricable from marxism and you know that means that You know, Marx is guilty of all the sins of Marxism. And, you know, Marxism ultimately uh, failed and it failed by defeating itself. Um, You know, when you can call that Stalinism, you can call that a lot of things. Um, So, you know, was Marxism always sound? You know, on questions of women's emancipation or of racism, et cetera, you know, I would say that it was most sound when it was, mo- when it most fundamentally attempted to m- be imminent to liberalism, right? Uh, so, I think that, you know, and and obviously, you know, the Marxism is a European phenomenon, most fundamentally, intellectually, and when it came to the United States in the Communist Party, uh, the the specificity of the black question, I think, um, in the United States mm, challenged it. For instance, they tried to grasp the black question as a national question on a European analogy. You know they tried to treat it as if it was like the polish question or, or or something like that and and that's an imperfect analogy um but yes you know bottom line yes i would say that you know particularly like you know these texts that are sort of way down the um you know like, that are kind of consolidating the failure of the new left that are kind of the least interesting expressions of the new left Um, you know, I would say, you know, for instance, I think that the preoccupation, you know, you know, the, you know, with uh, the failure of Marx on, you know, supposedly on race or something, you know, I, I think that that's inspired by the way that, uh, the civil rights movement failed to catalyze a renewal of socialism in the United States, um, You know, that, you know, which was, of course, most profoundly attempted through an integrationist project um, that, you know, challenged the political order in the United States. Um, Most obviously, it challenged the Democratic Party. Uh, It it knocked its Jim Crow leg out. Um, So, you know, I don't think that um, I, I think I think that Marx, you know. Of you know, just sort of you know, Marx takes for granted that you know race is epiphenomenal. That you know your skin color is about as significant as your eye color or your hair color. Uh, you're not, you know, no, we're not genetically determined. To, you know, like there's nothing like there's nothing like you know biologically true about being white or black other than like you know the color of your skin. It's just as incidental as that. Um, you know, he takes that for granted because he's an enlightenment figure, among other things, right? Because he's, you know, standing on the shoulders of that and attempting to advance it in the age of proletarian socialism. Um, I think that, you know, I I don't know what else there is, you know, I, I guess I, I suspect I'm suspicious of anything else, um, you know at the end of the day um you know it's especially when you're not you know when you're talking about like legalized you know when you're talking about a legal order of slavery or a legally imposed order of second class citizenship then obviously there is a there's a slavery question or a black question right and i don't think marxism is oblivious to that at all um I mean, I
3: think there's plenty of evidence in terms of Marx's writing where he talks about the role of primitive accumulation in terms of how capitalism develops. He talks about the role of slavery in the United States. and I mean, one of the things that's attractive to Marxism for me is that he's one of the few Western philosophers that clearly states the moral injustice of slavery. You know, it's it's very, very clear that he talks about these things. So I've always felt the charge that Marx was somehow lacking.
2: But but really... Pascal, you think he's one of the only Western thinkers? Not one of the only. He's one of the injustice of slavery?
3: No, I'm talking about in the particular context of the the uh, the American tran- post-Transatlantic slave trade period, pre-Civil War, anti-Bellum America. It's not common that you saw that amongst Western philosophers at that particular period of time. I'm not talking about overall right. in, the, in the history of Western civilization. I'm just well, talking about... In, in that particular period of time. Yes, you have, you know, I the, the, the French priest who talks about the coming of the Black Spartacus. I'm very familiar with that. There were abolitionists, of course, but Marx was a major thinker. And he and the way in which he taught he tied race to sure. political economy and the development of capitalism was rather original for that moment of time. It wasn't particularly something, and the critique well. of it was something that was actually significant.
2: Right. So, and one of the things, you know, and, and one of the things that he's keying into, right, that like just thinking about, you know, especially like, you know, I, I, I th- you know, I, I think it's an Adolf quote, right? Or it's, it, you know, some people think that slavery is a function of racism rather than racism being a function of slavery, right? <laughs> right? Um, right. When you think like that right? When you're like a a race mongerer, like these, you know, Democrats are today, right? You think that it, like you're not puzzled over what people in the 19th century were puzzled by. They were puzzled by slavery's persistence in the United States, right? Um, You know, I, I agree with Abraham Lincoln in the Cooper Union speech, I think all the Founding Fathers are anti-slavery. I think they all take for granted that slavery is a dying institution. I think they assume that slavery is like feudalism, that it's a form of unfreedom that has an expiration date stamped on it. And it's that's why they all oppose its spread into the Ohio country and the Northwest Territories, etc and the fact that it starts to spread and gets a new life from the industrial revolution from the turn to cotton and being integrated into you know the the cotton mills of manchester is startling to people right it provokes abolitionism of course, like in a new form, right? In the in a in, in a William Lloyd Garrison form, in a Frederick Douglass form, in a post-1830s form, right? When it looks like you know, this thing is like a cancer and it's gonna spread, it's gonna reinfect the territories where it's been abolished, right? It was slavery was abolished as a function of the of the revolution in the northern city in the northern states. And, you know, by the time you get to the Fugitive Slave Act, right, they're thinking, like, they're going to reimpose slavery in the North, basically. Um, and, you know, Marx's view of the Civil War, and this I, I take this seriously. I think serious historians do take it seriously. If the Confederacy wins, they win in the North, right? It means that the whole of the New World will become... A territory for slavery and for European imperialism again in a way that, um, you know, I I think a progressive narrative just can't, you know, and, and, and sort of stupid commentary on the civil war. Like it's about Northern capitalists um, rather than, you know, about the renewal of the American revolution. Um, so, you know, for Marx, like, Certainly he inherits um again, I would just say that the modern you know even even John Locke, who owned shares in um, the Royal African company, you know eventually sell, sells those shares. but I would say theoretically in his writing in this in the second treatise on government, all the way through Rousseau, through Jefferson, all of it, Kant, Hegel, it's a it's one vast argument against slavery. Uh, Adam Smith understands the rise of bourgeois society as a function of what he calls a European slave revolt. Um, you know, and, and he makes a point. He's, you know, he actually says in the third book of The Wealth of Nations, you don't think that serfdom is slavery? Well, it may not be that there's an auction block, right? It's not the same. There are different forms of slavery. And, of course, chattel slavery, uh, as practiced in the New World, is worse. But, you know, and he lists all of the things straight down to the fact that, you know, the Lord has the right uh, to, to, to take a woman's virginity the night before her marriage as all of the humiliations and the fact that you're tied to the land uh, of, of serfdom. And he describes it as a slave revolt. So I don't think that there was ever uh, such a thing as like a white bourgeois thought. Um, I'm glad that Sudeep Bhattacharya is listening because I'm I'm talking to him. Um, You know, these things are just, it's a, it's a, it's a vast, uh, you know, these are, this is all just projecting, Rotten justifications for you know diversity, equity, and inclusion, capitalism back on the past. That's all that it is. It's a, it's a, it's a slander against the modern revolution. Right? There never was there there never was a card carrying member of the Enlightenment or a card carrying member of socialism uh, who you know wasn't clear on the slavery question. Like at all, and the war in the United States, the Civil War, is understood as a continuation of the Revolution of 1848, not least by all of the German socialists uh, who had immigrated to the U.S. and were in the Union Army. Uh, some of whom were Marx's close friends, like Joseph Wedemeyer, the guy who published the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte. Um, you know, these people. I I, I think that um, you know. It, it's a, it's it's a sad commentary on you know the the nightmare of the 20th century, you know that we're left sort of, you know, as my friend uh, Chris Catron would say, you know, sort of, you know, throwing our chains at each other.
3: Well I want to ask you I want to ask you questions but how exactly are we going to justify or rect or rectify if you will this belief that the enlightenment is somehow the better rock of anti-slavery uh, 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 intellectual positioning when the enlightenment facilitates the growth of capitalism and 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 capitalism is hinged on slavery
2: Um I w- I would deny that capitalism is hinged on slavery um, in the you know- new world Well, I mean, obviously, there's a concrete history of the rise of capitalism. But, you know, I would say as the problem that we face, right, we don't face the problem of overcoming slavery, you know, we over we face the problem of overcoming wage slavery, we face the problem of the contradiction in the form of freedom that we have. Right? We don't, Right. the problem of capitalism is a problem of the self-contradiction of freedom, right? It is that, you know, our attempts to emancipate ourselves are contradictory. They reconstitute this freedom problem, right? Um, you know, I think that um, the the history of, you know, I, yeah, I, I guess I would say that. Um, you know, you you could say that. Uh, I mean, I guess it's just as simple. The argument for abolishing slavery that anybody's going to make, any black intellectual ever made, is the argument of the Enlightenment. It is the anti-slavery argument. Right, but, and so I don't understand, like you know, what what. Okay. Uh, I
3: understand the position you're making theoretically in terms of the rights of man, liberty, individual, so on and so forth. But one of the reasons why I particularly am a Dessalinian is that Dessalinian, in terms of his creation of an empire, intentionally did so in rebuke of the hypocrisy of the Enlightenment. There's a great text uh, that recently came out. We had her on our our show. She wrote a book called... um, the Haiti Papers, where she talks about how philosophically one of the main projects of the Dessalinian project was to openly reject the tenets of the Enlightenment out of the hypocrisy of the Enlightenment's terminologies and a rhetoric and how they talked about all of these high flown ideals. At the same time, many of the same philosophers, ideologists of the, of the Enlightenment were bonding Black men to slavery and Black women to slavery. And shackles. Now, I, guess- I agree with you that at the current moment we are beyond that, and that's not the, the, the crux of the problem today. But one of the problems that I personally kind of cringe at this romanticism of the Enlightenment is not that I deny that the arguments of the Enlightenment have always been used as the premise of anti racism outside of the Thessalonian. Uh, context that I'm using right now. King used re- Enlightenment res- uh, uh, rhetoric to justify de- uh, desegregation. There have always been use of Enlightenment rhetoric. Enlightenment rhetoric is about you know liberty, fraternity, you know you know freedom, so on and so forth. But one of the things that Enlightened, enlightened rhetoric is based on is also property and capital. And that's a basic fundamental right that is enshrined in Enlightenment thinking. And a consequence of that is that Enlightenment thinking has in tandem moved with liberal bourgeois democracy to facilitate the expanse and the, and the maintenance of capitalism.
2: Right. Um, look, the, the thing is that, um, you know, the Enlightenment ain't what it used to be, Right. I mean it would be one thing if we were talking about hypocrisy right like, you know let's take the example of Thomas Jefferson Thomas Jefferson is very well aware of the fact that he's a hypocrite right of course he knows that of course you know he's a you know he goes to paris as the ambassador from the united states and he's talking to radical revolutionaries. You know, of course, he had to answer that question, and of course, he was incapable of giving a principled response, right? It, you know, it. I mean, in his writings, he gives a response, which he says, you know, look, I, I, I it's a, re, it's repugnant, and you know, it's dying out. It simply, you know, it was a task that was, you know, we couldn't have both. Um, broken with the mother country in 1776 and overturned slavery outside of the Northern States. So he's, there's an acknowledged hypocrisy, but then there's the question of the actual crisis of liberalism, right? And you know, know, and and Marx addresses this in the communist manifesto, right? He's for instance, says, you know, he has that great second section where the capitalists and the workers are kind of in a dialogue and the capitalist says, hey, you're trying to abolish private property. And the response is not, yes, I'm trying to abolish private property because liberalism is a lie and it's a project of the ruling class. No, the argument is capitalism destroys private property right? It destroys private property, you know, and of course that's most obviously the case. It destroys the private property that we have in ourselves. It destroys the literal basis of our being free men and women, right? Which is that we own ourselves, we sell ourselves for wages, we're no man's slave, right? When you're unemployed and can't get a job, that liberal freedom which is rooted in private property right in the in the commodity form of labor right that itself is a form of unfreedom right it's generating unfreedom and of course what do what do workers demand right they demand a job right which is of course right the way that slavery and patriarchy and everything else gets abolished to the extent that they do. Right. Slavery, slaves become wage laborers and women get jobs and they don't depend upon their husbands and brothers, etc. cetera. Right. This is still a very palpable form of freedom. Right. Every young person, you know, wants to go out and make it in the world. Right. They don't want welfare to get increased right they don't want to like live a, a good life by cashing a check you know they want to go out and contribute to society through the commodity form and that's going to enter into crisis right so liberalism itself right marx calls it a lot of things he says you know it it becomes vulgarized it becomes mean it becomes you know um desiccated Right? And of course, the most obvious way, and this gets to the heart of what I wrote about, the most obvious way that it does that is that in order to manage its failure, in order to manage the crisis of, of you know, essentially the form of society that the modern revolution, that liberal ideas, the enlightenment has brought into being, to manage its crisis in, in conditions of capitalism. It has to erect an ever more powerful state. It has to have more and more cops. It has to have bigger and bigger armies, right? The war, which the bourgeois revolution attempted to overcome, both the war between estates right because it understands the estate system as a war the 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 aristocrats are at war they they've, they've they've put society under armed occupation and war between states which are crimes committed against society by princes in the bourgeois conception that has become integral to the social and political order right a war of Nations, a war of the ruling class, or it's the war really of society against itself, right? So, of course, for Marxists, this, the state at its core is armed force, right? What Lenin calls bodies of armed men, Right? and those are those are the you know direct expressions of the failure of society to subordinate the state and the state's reemergence not as a not as neo-feudalism as like some of these crackpot you know sort of pseudo-Marxists would say but as a function of the crisis of bourgeois freedom itself right
3: so you Jason you want to jump in
2: I just, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of, you
0: know, get back to, you know, I don't, I don't want us to go too far off the rails here and have, um, uh, a philosophical discussion, which I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying the hell out of it and, and, and moving out of the way while these two mega minds uh, have this talk.
2: No, no, no. I want to hear from you too, Jason. Uh, I know you got great questions.
0: Um, I do want to ask a little bit and, and I, I want you to explain bonapartism because, um, I, I won't lie, Gene Bajlan kind of forced Toussaint and I to start figuring out what it meant because he kept saying that, uh, well, you're not so much a socialist as you're a Bonapartist. Um, and, um, in, you know, uh, Toussaint, do you want to add something to that? We were talking about this the other day.
1: He was always saying uh, FDR, definitely a Bonapartist. And just like Good. okay. No one uh-huh. in the US calls him that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> so it's, it's, it's not it's not a term that you know
2: Communist Party know. did in mm. its third period before um you know before the pop front, called him a fascist too.
0: Mm. Have I you heard I've that Pascal? FDR as a fascist I've never heard
3: part fascist, but I have heard Bonapartist Green Man Theory of History, the center of all things that happen, you know, the, the progenitor of all activity kind of I've heard Bonapartist. Gene, Gene Bajlan is the one who talked to me about uh, FDR as a Bonapartist as well.
0: So we, we have to we have to give Gene Bajlan his props for, for upping us on that and kind of preparing us. Maybe he was preparing us for, for your text.
2: Yeah, let's. this is a great question, Jason. This is a great question, because this is the heart of the matter, right? Why do I write this book? Uh, because... All of these leftists are out here running, you know, all all of these leftists are saying they're Marxists or they want to be Marxists or they're somehow interested in Marxism. They couldn't care less about Marxism. And, you know, that's fine. Like, you don't have to care about it. Mm -hmm. But leave him out of it. Like, leave Marxism out of it. it. It doesn't have a goddamn thing to do with the DSA. It doesn't have anything to do with getting, you know, politicians elected to administer the capitalist state, right? Mm. It doesn't have anything to do with that, right? Marxism is about a class independent politics, right? And this is really at the heart of the matter, right? For socialists, you do not, you know, not one man and not one penny for this rotten system. Right. You can't, you know, I, mean, I was listening to Kshama Sawant and, um, you know, Brianna Joy Gray. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, beating up on Ryan Grimm. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, fine. I agree. You know, Ryan Grimm, you know, beat up on him, no problem. Mm-hmm. But Shama Sawant's like, well, you can't, you know, you can't cross a picket line as like a socialist elected official. And I'm like, well, you can't vote for the military budget either, sister. There's not one vote that AOC has taken Mm -hmm. that that you can't vote yes for anything. Mm -hmm. You know, if you get elected into Congress and you're a socialist, you say no to everything. Because their wars for freedom Mm -hmm. are going to be a strengthening of the state against the people. Their, Mm -hmm. Their welfare projects are a strengthening of the state against the working class even that what they claim to be doing on behalf of the working class is to strengthen capitalism, right? Marxism, you know, may be irrelevant to the world. We haven't had it in a long time, right? But what we've seen with the left now, you know, especially since the Bernie campaign, you know, like the great thing about the DSA or, you know, like the, I guess what the accomplishment that the millennials thought that they had Undertaken was is that they got rid of the sectarian left. Mm. They did, and the sectarian left is a problem. But you don't overcome it by becoming Democrats, right? Mm-hmm. It, it it like the sectarian you know those these problems like you know like in other words, why don't I just go out and start a Marxist party, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Because if I tried to do it, I'd either look like, you know, I'd either get sucked into NGO leftism. I'd either try to do, do activism mm-hmm. or I would become like a sect, you know, like the Spartacist League, or the Socialist Workers Party or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're, there's, a, there's a real historical impasse. And Bernie Sanders didn't, didn't overcome it you know turning a whole new generation of would-be leftists into democrats who are going to you know support war and censorship and the curtailment of people's rights and all of the garbage that being a democrat takes you down the road of mm-hmm. you know basically defending the fbi defending the cia all of the you know it, it, these people they you know, in in for a penny in for a pound Right. From that moment, from the moment of the Bernie Sanders campaign, it became anti-Trump. Then it became, you know, defend like all of the deep state shenanigans. Then it became, you know, cheering on like, you know, raids on Mar-a-Lago and, you know, defending the Twitter moderation and all the rest of it. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. people, you know, it's just capitalist politics you know, very rotten, very degenerate form.
0: But wouldn't, well, you, wouldn't you say, though, wouldn't you say, and maybe you disagree with me, and, and that's fine, wouldn't you say the rise of Bernie Sanders post-Barack Obama, and I think there's no better killing of the idea of socialism than the ascendancy of Barack Obama, would you say that the rise of Bernie Sanders does bring to the fold an idea that's been dormant probably since the the 70s because even people like adolf it reed showed, have-
2: it, it, it showed that the left wanted to take power and like yeah. that's cool yeah I, right? I
0: i'm not saying it was the end all be all and 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 it's the, the ultimate movement but can we at least agree or do you just totally disagree Look, that, uh, that my problem is,
2: is important you know Why was I forced out as the editor of Sublation magazine, right? Mm -hmm. Why do people hate platypus, Mm -hmm. right? They hate it, not because, you know, not just because we're going to say, you know, this Bernie thing is going to end poorly. It's because even when it ends poorly, you can't say so. Right. You You still can't say so. People will say, Well, you're a sectarian. And it's like, well, look, you know, I, 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 you know, I was listening to your guys interview with Matt Chrisman, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like total abdication. He's like, well, all we do is recreation online. And I'm like, no, you are a leftist intellectual and it does mean something what you say. And it isn't, you know, it, 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 he, he, you know, you're talking about mosques, you're talking about churches, you're talking about like bowling leagues. Can we talk about the fact that there's not a socialist party in the United States? Can, can we just register that, right? As, as the you know, people talk about, like, we need a party. Even Breonna Joy Gray and, and Shama are talking about it, right? And it's like, look, as soon as you say that, you're talking about the DSA. You know, if you say the DSA should rebuke or expel the squad mm-hmm. and they should start talking about forming their own party, you're talking about facing a historical impasse. Mm-hmm. You are talking about going down the road of being an ir- irrelevant sect. Mm-hmm. right? And all that I'm saying is, can we please confront that impasse? Right Rather isn't it hard to confront those I'm, I'm not criticizing anybody for doing anything like okay you had this experience of Bernie Sanders but does it just make you a democrat for life it, that seems to be what's happened with baska sankara I you, sorry go ahead yeah. <laughs> I want I want I want to
3: jump in here this is getting Go good. ahead go
0: ahead baska
3: how do you then how, first of all I want to put on the record that the first place i heard that, that bernie sanders is going to lead people into the democratic party was through my editor bruce dixon who coined the phrase sheepdog who basically said that bernie sanders would be the sheepdog that led people into the democratic it
2: party what's the sectarian background of bruce dixon i bet there is one oh Oh, bruce, bruce dixon
3: definitely comes out of the more ml kind of uh, uh, right. uh, uh background i don't think there's anything i meant
2: yeah but I got no that I, I'm not interested in denying those kind of backgrounds. Go ahead. The point I want to say is that how does one
3: avoid uh being deemed an ultra leftist or or uh sectarian or one who is completely unrealistic in terms of where the realpolitik of the moment is, where people are uh regarding the moment, if if you stick by the position that democratic entryism is the only option that these current quote unquote nominal socialists are offering in other words you have to deal with people where they are and third party options aren't 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 realistic how does one deal with those uh those accusations
2: i i don't have any political solutions pascal all that i would say is that um you know if we there's a whole world of of young people who are interested in leftist ideas and let's stop lying to them right if you there's a there's an inherent lie in claiming that there's a connection between Karl Marx and AOC right that's just a flat lie it has roots in stalinism i would say right it's a refusal to to come to terms with what i'm calling the impasse uh which is really you know the failure of socialist of revolutionary socialist politics in history right um which i would argue is a failure and defeat that that keeps happening right that's like actually the most profound thing happening uh historically around us and i'm simply saying this you know to someone like matt Chrisman, don't disavow being a leftist at one point in that interview he said you know it's my job to explain things exactly right we're not going to organize a socialist party not you pascal not me mm-hmm. right that's mm-hmm. going to come from people in society mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right but let's at least have the debate intellectually rather than all this dishonest stuff about you know this is racist or this is eurocentric or whatever i'm just saying like can't you just say you're anti-marxist right can't you just say that you're against socialism because you know there is a tradition it's got its failures you know it's not like uh, pristine. It failed on a world historic scale. But I would argue, but, right?
0: Spencer, Spencer, I hate to, I'm, I'm not trying to interrupt you here. I, I will oh, let you finish your thought. Just check this in real quick. Wouldn't you agree that to be a leftist in the modern era, to say you're a leftist, is still somewhat fringe? It's almost like saying you appreciate Basquiat, in my opinion, right? Oh, I like art. I know Basquiat, I'm a socialist, I know Marx. Calling someone like AOC, and I don't use the term the squad, uh, unless I'm being facetious, because that's a term Trump invented. They didn't sit around and put their fists together like superheroes and say, us four will defeat the the Democratic Party.
2: Uh, But there were people that the the DSA actually went out and canvassed for. Say again. There were people that the DSA actually went out and canvassed for. The DSA not-
0: canvassed for you know Villanueva, the 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 crooked sheriff in L.A. I mean, I, I can't get behind everybody at the I'm DSA canvasses for. But 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 my point is my point is that the squad was probably Trump's greatest media creation, and the idea of being a quote unquote leftist means you you know Marx. I think a lot of these people that are quote-unquote leftists or progressives, that's why we have so many names, right? Uh, well, I'm not a Marxist, I'm a progressive, I'm not a socialist, I'm a this, I don't need to read Marx to be a socialist because this existed before this guy anyway, I don't care, I'm going to play this Kwame Ture clip where he's talking about uh, Marx didn't invent socialism and that's what I'm going to hang my hat on. Um. I see AOC, and this is just my opinion, mm-hmm. as more of a liberal media creation in an era where she is the first social media political figure. Trump existed way before social media, right? AOC is the social media creation. And we saw so many wannabe AOCs after her, so many young people that wanted to have a really well-done video go viral and then try to try to get elected, and some actually did. So what's sad to me is that a lot gets lost in the media creation. This is, again, my opinion, the media creation of the Squad, AOC, and Marx, because it all gets lumped together in the same pile.
2: What I'm trying to say is, it, you know, and this gets to this issue of bonapartism, right, is that um, the capitalist state, You know, and it's not about like powerful men or dictators or something like that right the the point with louis bonaparte is that he's a socialist and he wins elections the critique is not that the election is rigged he's a democrat and a socialist right and you know he has his roots in sansimonianism he he appoints a bunch of sansimonians to create the finance system of the Second Empire, right, which is really the model going forward of capitalist finance in relation to the state, right? Um, socialism isn't a is not a set of policies that can be implemented by the capitalist state democracy is going to take capitalist politics is going to take what the left says and turn it into capitalist state policy. That's what the capitalist state is. That's why it has, you know, all of these welfare schemes and so forth. Right. And Marxism is about saying that's capitalism. Capitalism isn't a free market system. Capitalism is about monopoly, it's about all sorts of implications with the state and the police and the army, et cetera, right? That's capitalism, right? And my point is simply, if you're a socialist, you don't enforce capitalism on the working class, right? It's a politics that has to be organized in civil society against the state, right? It can't take responsibility for the capitalist state. It can't be elected president. The Democratic Party is the oldest capitalist party, very arguably. It's older than the liberals in Britain. It's older than the conservatives in Britain. It's older than labor it's older than social, the Social Democratic Party in Germany. It's the oldest capitalist political party. It's responsible for slavery, Jim Crow, imperialism, the Cold War, you know, the police state, the carceral state. Right? There is nothing, literally nothing about the Democrats that make them to the left of the Republicans. This is all bullshit right? These, this is a capitalist party political system, right? If we wanted to address it, right, we would have to address, you know, building up a party in society, which, yeah, might have connections to the church, or might have, might try to take over the ACLU, or create a legal structure like the ACLU, or might try to provide um, abortions to women who can't, Find them or health care. It might find itself affiliated with all sorts of professionals. Doctors might want to give their time. Lawyers might want to give their time, right? It would involve a lot more than just unions, right? As historic socialism did. Um. So you know, but that's a very long haul. Or, or you know, just to say that's the historic model that we have. We might be beyond that. Right. We, there may be no legacy of Marxism in the world today. Right. But if there isn't, you know, let's say that, right. I don't really know if Marxism has any relevance anymore. Um, In what sense? Well, there's definitely not a you know, it, Marxism is a critique of the socialist labor movement. That's actually what it is. It's mm-hmm. a it's, it's the critical current within socialism, mm-hmm. right? It, you know, like for instance, Marx's very concept of capital has within it a socialist workers' movement, right? From from Marx's perspective, it's not clear that we live in capitalism. Right, because for Marx, socialism is at the heart of capitalism. Right, he talks about it in Capital as, you know, driving the industrial revolution by limiting the hours of the working day. Right, it gives rise to, re- to what he calls relative surplus value, which is really about the drive towards technological innovation, um, etc. Right, so for Marx, Marx is living in a world in which there are mass parties in the heart of capitalism. That are seeking to overthrow the government and institute socialism. Right. That's what he's interested in. Mm-hmm. That's what he's a part of. That's what he's an imminent, if you'll allow the phrase, an imminent dialectical critic of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't live in that context like at all. Mm-mm. Right. The you know, Pascal says it all the time, you know, we don't have a left, we have some leftists, right? Um we have some people who were talking about these things. You know, m- my question would be, or you know, I guess the only evidence that I have um, would be, you know, when things are dark and when the discontent is palpable and when we don't want to be here or we don't want to participate or we don't want to participate on these terms or this feels dystopian people reach back to Karl Marx. They do. They reach back to the history of socialism. Right? It's there as like an ache or a wound on but, the on the present, right? It doesn't mean to I do it? what we're doing, but it's kind of this haunting presence. Go ahead.
0: My fear is that, and I'm not disagreeing with you. Uh, I'm just kind of adding my, my own fears about what you're saying, and I don't know how Pascal or, or Toussaint feel about this or, or people listening and... Uh, commenting in the chat, is that as you say, if Marxism is so invisible, real Marxism is invisible, and then you have the facade then of what leftism looks like, and uh, I'll I'll call on Chris Catrone as well, fellow Star Wars fan, and it's kind of how you view in the original movies, the, the Jedi are kind of outcast crazy people that don't really exist and have a silly religion and that's almost how I feel about when you really start to get in the weeds about Marx because Mm -hmm. it is such an unknown because let's be honest Spencer and let's be honest Pascal and let's be honest Toussaint the communist manifesto which I first picked up at about 10 years old because my stepmom had it and I was like what is this I'm not going to lie and say I understood what I was reading because it's dense and it's complicated, Mm -hmm. right? And because of the denseness and the complications and because we live in in a society where information is at our fingertips and we can get it within minutes, I don't mean the access to the information within minutes. I mean deciphering this dense text in I, seven minutes in three minutes
2: i would say that um a lot That's of crazy. what's difficult right i it is you know all of these things are difficult and what's difficult about them is that the context or the preconditions for what makes them intelligible are gone mm-hmm. um you know I, I you know for instance marx will say things that seem a little bit whack like you know I'm writing this for the working class. Um, you know, even if you look at, um, you know, to, to plug my forthcoming books again, even if you look at this journalism that I've edited, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is like, this is the the stuff that he's writing in English for the American press um, is, is all for this newspaper, the New York Tribune. It was the largest circulating newspaper in the world be, because it had a weekly edition that was sent around the country, and Marx's articles were always included in the weekly edition because he was like a big hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people liked him, uh, and you know probably Abraham Lincoln out in like Springfield, Illinois is reading this stuff, right? Like any good Republican would have. Uh, it was a Republican newspaper. Um, the the level of the writing is you know way above anything that's written today Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. way above that and i would argue that it was probably more intelligible to illiterate people than it is to literate people today (laughs) because even illiterate people lived in a different world which yes to our eyes looks unfree like it does right like mm-hmm. there's all kinds of capitals progress between us and that time but the difference between our time and their time is that they felt the the they felt the revolutionary prospect of the future and it... It, it resulted in like a radically different subjectivity, even amongst common people, right? That they thought that, you know, they, you know, in, in many ways, like I would say that the prospects of freedom in the 19th century are much greater, right. Than they are today in terms of, you know, even though it's like a Eurocentric, you know, colonial world with lots of slavery and so forth, right? There's a way in which, you know, not just Karl Marx, like, you know, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, who after all, wasn't well educated. You know, poor soul. He was born a slave. Yes. He had to, you know, to 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 scrape for for his literacy, right? He had to, he had to hustle to get the time, right? You read him his speeches, they're masterful mm-hmm. pieces of rhetoric. And they just the you can hear the 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 revolution flowing through his speech, right? It was a different world. Right. And these like cheap dismissals that you'll hear from these Democrats, like, oh, this is just white supremacy and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm why why is it white supremacy because socialism was in Europe that's their argument in in essence <laughs> I mean really I mean Jason I've heard people say literally I've heard people say at Marx'ist conferences um you know the the, the thing in New York City um that they'll say thank God we didn't achieve socialism in the 19th century because that would have been white supremacist <laughs> right wow. You know, I mean, doesn't
0: it, But but Spencer, again, this kind of goes to what I'm I'm talking about with when we think about the post '60s '70s into right. the '80s when everyone's in the outskirts. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in the hinterlands of thought. Adolf Reed is in the Village Voice, which doesn't exist anymore which I think is where most of those things were published that he writes in, uh, what's the right. first and
2: he's, book? and he's a product of the New Left. Yes.
0: Right? Oh, yeah, and he'll tell you that. And, and, and he has no problem telling you that. Um, when, when, when that's gone, it, it goes, again, I, I want to use that kind of Star Wars metaphor, and I'm sorry if people don't like it, but when it's gone, mm-hmm. where do you then go? And who then becomes the spokespeople for this movement? And what is your left look like? Because to me, it's always going to be captured, which is a reason why I do enjoy reading and learning, especially from someone like yourself. I wasn't joking and I wasn't trying to be funny when I said this man will forget more about Karl Marx than those of us on this screen will ever learn.
2: what happens? Nice like Bob Dylan reference.
0: <laughs> but I mean, Pascal, seriously. I forgot more about this? I, when- I
2: forgot more than you'll ever know about her. Look, look yeah,
0: Spencer, I think it's important to to pass these things along. Pascal tries to pass things along that he learned from Bruce Dixon to me. Right. right. I then try to do it with, with my children. Um, but what happens, though? when all these great thinkers that are helping us understand this thought are gone. And now you can just say you it's, are a Marxist with with a very tertiary understanding of it,
2: if at all. One of the things that you see the, the millennials doing uh, that I think is kind of implicit in what, what you're raising, Jason, mm-hmm. is that um, they don't want to talk to old people Mm. right they don't want to talk to um they don't want to talk to the people who had a i think a a, you know a, a, a profounder experience um generationally um you know obviously my generation was like useless right um you know i'm an 80s kid know you guys are talking about like kendrick lamar and all this stuff that's that's not my generation like prince and michael jackson that's my generation maybe a little bit of public enemy right um the you know and in my generation you know there was just absolutely like no leftist movement really it was it was a it was warmed over new left actually it was kind of a it was a repeat and and the millennials had an experience that that promised to be something other than just like a degenerate repetition of the new left but now they seem to want to have a degenerate repetition of the new left like all the way down to like proletarianizing themselves and like yes. doing the rank and file strategy and all this yes. shit from the 70s right um what you know what is sad about the millennials is that like they had a I think a, a there, there was also a sense of vertigo.
0: Hmm.
2: Uh, you know they they had a sense that like history was like shifting, right? Because mm-hmm. it was in the two thousand zeros and two thousand tens, and they came to the point where they thought you know we're gonna like reconsider history to find our way forward and one of the things I hate about like the post burning turn is mm-hmm. that they've become much less curious and they've turned off a whole set of questions Ooh. right and it's really you know and, and they there and the catastrophism and the fear like drives everything mm-hmm. right and you really heard that with like the with with Matt chrisman you know and if it's like you know, if we're like the last humans or whatever, Mm -hmm. right? I still want to struggle for socialism. Yeah. Right. And I quite frankly don't think that I can be, and it isn't to stop the climate from changing. You know, I, I really think like if we're at the tipping point or whatever, you know, capitalism's either going to figure it out or we're doomed because socialism's going to be a long-term project. Right, it's a long-term project. It is not like getting Bernie Sanders elected, right? It's a much deeper uh, endeavor, um, and so you know, let's just hope that they figure out the fusion or whatever that happened last week, right? And we go like carbonless, you know, and mm-hmm. they find a way to make money on that, um, because you know, <laughs> <laughs> this is not something that the left is going to do, like right now. It's like. No. Right. You're it's just, out. you know, like they're going to the capitalism's going to do that. I want to
3: address a comment you made about the, the millennial generation. Uh, do you think that part of the problem is that these leftists that we have choose left, leftism as a lifestyle choice as opposed to a political worldview? And that a consequence of that is that basically it's kind of like a club. As opposed to a mechanism for political and social change,
2: yeah, I, I think that they they don't know their their history, right? Um, like what are like, what is like the like what we call the left are like a bunch of socialist intellectuals and middle class people who would be members of a socialist party if there was one, right? In the 19th century there were lots of people 19th and 20th century there were lots of people who were not working class right they were intellectuals they were philosophers like Karl Marx or you know they were even capitalists like Robert Owen um you know they were kind of kooky utopians like Charles Fourier Uh, they were like science and technology nuts like Saint-Simon um, you know they were bohemians they were interested in art they were they they would have been talking to you know charles baudelaire and friedrich nietzsche in the in the 70s and 80s in the 1870s and 80s you know this, this is what socialists this is what people meant by socialism right they actually meant the middle class people right who were in the party with the working class people, right? They were heirs to like John Paul Marat. They were heirs to the Jacobins, mm-hmm. right? They were heirs to like the revolutionary politicians of the past, uh, but they were attaching themselves. I think Lenin calls himself a Jacobin at- attached to the, to the socialist workers movement, right? Um They were, they were, they were journalists, right? That's like why Marx is a journalist, right? They wrote ideas uh, and there was a working class audience for that, right? And there was a debate. Like, there were debates and there were multiple parties, etc. And we just have the kind of the detritus that's historically, uh, you know, downstream from that, which is, you know, a bunch of... Uh, you know, intellectuals who kind of, you know, this is where I just feel like can we just be honest about what we are talking into these microphones and writing these books, right? We're like homeless socialists, right? Who are, you know, who are kind of purposeless without a party, right? Right um you know i'd i'd much prefer not that i would ever compare myself uh, you know but i'd prefer to be taught to be writing like lenin writes mm-hmm. or rosa Luxemburg writes like mm-hmm. I'm, you know like party literature like that's what makes that shit weird right you read like you know this these are people in a party writing for members of a party like it's weird right when you read that old stuff um you know but that's what socialists did uh, and you know they weren't just debating strategy; they were talking about like how does this movement fit into like the whole of world history, and right at each stage, and what is the meaning of this turn and that turn, right? You know they would they would there would be a press that would be for the working class it would that would be talking about this whole Elon Musk Twitter thing mm-hmm. as this like capitalist phenomenon that tells us something about their system. Right. But that's
0: Spence. You know? That's kind of like, you know, where I get frustrated with where we are as a left, why I do this show. You know, a, a lot of these shows, I'll be completely honest to people listening. Hmm. A lot of the shows that we do come from not so much anymore as Gene helps out with the booking, <laughs> come from my frustration hmm. with the mainstream. Sure. And, uh, you know, what you're talking about with Elon Musk and Twitter, it, it, it's kind of exactly my frustration. I read a really interesting medium piece from a person that writes in tech that works for Microsoft. Um, I can't remember the woman's name. And it was titled, Is Failure Part of the Plan? When it came to Twitter. And it feels like talking about a billionaire's failures, quote unquote is not making us really redefine what failure is because Twitter financially has never really been a success. Mm-hmm. The big tech companies that we talk about that actually influence politics and policy and holds court over the working class. I'm talking about Uber, Lyft, DoorDash. When we talk about the proletariat, we talk about the working class. People love talking about Starbucks. For some reason, no one really likes to talk about the people that drive the people to Starbucks, right, or deliver said Starbucks, that before even Proposition 22 was voted on or even conceived in California, part of the original bill, the negotiation of the original bill, AB5, was that there would be no unionizing. And even that wasn't enough. For the tech oligarchy. And they go even further with with Proposition 22. Um, But we never look at these companies or these people, uh, Spotify, failure. Is it because they have market capture? Is it because we can't think beyond
2: markets? Everyone that's talking about Elon Musk as a failure. The thing about Elon Musk and Twitter, right? It's just this it's that um, politics is at stake. Mm-hmm. Right. it It's that, you know, these people try, you know, they control access to the paper, the ink, the printing press. Mm-hmm. Right. We can't write, we can't publish apart from dealing with Google and Twitter and Facebook and all the rest. Right um and in and, and anything that you know in and, and if there was socialism mm-hmm. it would be it would be hate speech and terrorism right that's the way that the capitalists will look at it right it okay. would be about fomenting class war yeah right it's hate speech right you're you're you know like what socialist worth its salt isn't going to bitch about the ruling class right <laughs> um, yeah. right um and and so you know, there's a principle involved, right? Which really isn't just about like the the sort of preoccupied, you know, like you hear these stupid leftists say, well, these are private companies. It's like, these people have a goddamn monopoly on the paper and ink. Like this is not a private company. I can't just go out here and, you know, by my own, You know, it used to be you could just set up your own printing press. I mean, that's what the socialists <laughs> did, right? They mm-hmm. bought their paper and their ink and their printing press, and they went out and sold it. You can't do that now, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what's at issue, right? Um, you know, and and they are, you know, and of course it, they're demonstrably using it to rig elections, right? Yes, they're, they're demonstrably using it to like rig political outcomes and it happens to be for the republicans but i'm not on team democrat Mm -hmm. right they're not doing this on my behalf (laughs) right they're just violating like the only legal space in which socialism could possibly develop right which you know i hate to tell these you stupid leftists right this the fbi is not on your side the cia is not on your side right? The only thing that is on your side is the fucking Constitution, right? It is your right as a minority. It is, it is the right to have views that are not appreciated in society, that are offensive, that do call everything into question, right? That challenge the mainstream, that are you know filled with hate, Or we'll talk about overthrowing the government, right? If you think that that's allowed by Wall Street and the tech oligarchy, you're a fool, right? These these leftists are cutting the branch off that they sit on if they knew anything, if they were leftists. The fact that they can, you know, act like this doesn't matter just tells you they're not serious. Right. We, you know, like I say, we would we would be pushing for the right of free speech. We would have lawyers. We would have, you know, after all, the ACLU was established by a bunch of old socialists. They didn't do it in order to give the KKK the right of free speech, but they defended the KKK's right of free speech. They did it in order to defend the right of free speech so that free speech could do what it's supposed to do. Mm hmm which is to allow society to change.
0: But isn't that the greatest thing that has been has been happening in the sense for, for capitalism to protect itself, that free speech has now fallen into the hands of the private sector? I mean, well, if you really think about free speech, like where we have our public debates are not in the public sphere. We have them in the private sector.
2: Right. I mean, it's a... It, you know, we need to be clear about these things right mm-hmm. that like, our, our rights under the Constitution are at stake in the things that you know this Vijaya Gade and these other people are doing in a mm-hmm. private corporation right that's all that i'm saying you know they were at stake in you know in the way that the new york times and you know the washington post and etc kept the voices of leftists out in the 20th century right i mean it's not that the left has ever enjoyed like this you know fair playing field right (laughs) right obviously it's like these stupid people who think that we have the right to that we don't care about what happens on you know the january 6th you know events it's like look there's the right to assemble Mm -hmm. you have to distinguish that from the laws that are being broken right because i don't know about you jason but i've never been to a demonstration where people didn't break laws where some windows didn't get smashed or some people didn't go nuts or start fighting Mm -hmm. the cops like Mm -hmm. and i still want my right to assemble yeah no matter what what happens
0: the greatest thing, again, I think some of the greatest things to happen for capital are, you know, George Floyd,
2: January 6th. No doubt. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm just saying, like, can we please say that we're fighting a war in the Ukraine, that George, the death of George Floyd helped mm-hmm. the military industrial complex to fight a war in Ukraine, because that's what's happening, Right. The Democrats rode this wave of fake Mm anti-fascism, and they're now fighting a fake anti-fascist war. Right? It's not. It's not that they're like sinister. Like that they're like manipulating people. Like they're duped by their own bullshit. (laughs) Right? Of course they are. That's why that they think they're fighting the same fight. Yes. But. It's all just capitalist
0: bullshit. Well, yeah, right? Once you convince someone, once you convince someone that they're f- the Cold War, you're a child of the 80s, you're a little, you got me on some years, but we both grew up watching the same propaganda. Mm-hmm. If you're defeating the bad guy, which kind of, again, when we talk about communism and socialism and the failures of socialism, what's really hard, especially for young people, And I don't and I don't mean young as an age, I mean young in being a leftist and feeling very confident and not just wearing it as a lifestyle brand, Mm
3: -hmm. but
0: really politically believing in the tenets of of socialism, then you have to deal with the failures of communism and socialism in practice. You do indeed. And that's very hard for people to try to deal with because no one has because. You feel as if, and this is, correct me if I'm wrong, Pascal, or or help me make this point better. You feel as if you're talking to the winner. I'm talking to the capitalists. I'm talking to the Democrat. I'm talking to the person that believes in liberal democracy. They believe they won post-91, post the fall of, of, of the Soviet Union. And they think their system is infallible. Regardless of the fact that we're having this discussion in front of a homeless encampment, regardless of the fact that we're having this discussion possibly at a rally where a cop just shot another unarmed citizen or we're having this at a, at a, at a strike.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. We're still talking to the people that believe they are part of the winning team. How do we then reckon with that pushback on socialism, communism, that it is, a failed ideology because look at the bread lines look at the poverty in cuba look at the poverty in venezuela
3: i just had that debate today with someone on social media and actually right before and first of all he brought up cuba the first thing i told him i said the per capita income in cuba is higher than both the dominican republic and uh, jamaica Second thing I told him, I said, "Show me a place where socialism hasn't been attempted to be destroyed by capitalism." The same way you talk about how socialism doesn't work—if everywhere it's been tried, you try you capitalists stop it from working. Why do you think it fails so much? I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. It's like you shoot someone in the kneecaps and you ask him why he can't walk. <laughs> so, I mean, for me, I, 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 um, I kind I mean, of don't accept. I, just- I, be- I, be- I believe that we have. To- I believe that there have been clear mistakes among socialists and communists, obviously, in the 20th century. But I actually don't swallow that as much, because I think that if we understand the power of the capitalists and the amount of sheer mercenary energy that they put through to destroy any type of challenge to their economic worldview... I think we'd be less willing to act like we did things wrong and be more willing to say, we wish we had better
2: guns. Because that's kind of the way I look at it. Mm. Um, Well, Democrats could take your guns, Pascal. (laughs) First thing, right? (laughs) um, I'll say this, look, the the failure of social Socialism is happening in the first world. Right? The depth of socialism is happening in the United States. Uh, the, it, it happened in Russia. Uh, you, you could say it's happening in China, depending on how you view that history um, and ha- how you understand the Chinese Revolution to begin with, etc. All the post-war, post you know, World War II revolutions, you know, have that kind of post-Soviet, sort of post-Stalin character. Yeah. Um, you know i i agree with you you know pascal i mean I, I can make a stalinist argument which is look communism has a great economic record right it worked wonders in the soviet union it's delivered the most you know powerful engine for capitalism in china right like on a, like a development index <laughs> communism looks just as good as capitalism Right. Uh, I'm a historian of India, Um, you know, in, in, you know, they don't count all of the children who die prematurely or of malnutrition or whatever, as like they count the stack of bodies in the Great Leap Forward. Right. But it's a catastrophe. It wasn't like, you know, was it caused by politics? I would say, yes, it was caused by politics, no less surely than like a Ukrainian famine or, you know, the famine at the time, you know, at the time of the Great Leap Forward was caused by politics. I don't, you know, even if you want to play that kind of stupid, you know, count the corpses game, Um, but let's leave all of that kind of tanky preoccupation aside. Right? What I would say is that all politics, even what I'm calling capitalist politics, is a kind of socialist politics. Really what Marxism is, is the argument that you can't reform capitalism. Right? Now, it doesn't, you know, in the sense that the that the discontent and the crisis that gives rise to revolution routinely in capitalism, repeatedly within capitalism, should be pushed by the working class through all of its contradictory phases to the point of taking power. That's really. Like the Marxism is saying, look, this is the tendency of these revolutions. Already in 1848, the working class is posing the question of power. In the Paris Commune, of course, the working class takes power briefly in the city of Paris. Right? What Marxism is is saying is like, let's take that tendency and push it. That's really all that Marxism ever is, is like an endorsement of the the profoundest. Tendencies within socialism. You know, it's why Marx plagiarizes everything, right? He plagiarizes Louis Blanc. He plagiarizes Blanqui. He plagiarizes Robert Owen, you know, all of his great phrases. You know, the freedom of each will be the precondition for the freedom of all or um, you know we'll we'll go from um you know from each you know we'll go to the point of from each according to his abilities and to each according to his needs all these phrases are ripped off cuz marx is ripping socialism off he's pushing it he's a, he's criticizing it and he's saying let's let's take it to you know, the 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 point of the crisis of this entire social form where we result where we openly prosecute that crisis politically which is what the dictatorship of the proletariat would make possible for him and i think that what we've lost sight of is that you this is a project that you you can't simultaneously in other words yeah i'll i'll grant you bernie sanders is a socialist but only if you grant me that Donald Trump is a socialist and Hillary Clinton is a socialist <laughs> and Barack Obama is a socialist because they're all managing capitalism and they're all going to violate private property rights right they're going to do all kinds of stuff in terms of bailouts in terms of all sorts of things right capitalism is one rolling violation of private property rights not just for the working class right? These monopolies that we're talking about, um, right? And so the, everyone is like a politically managing the crisis of capitalism. Uh, you know, it's a story that Chris Catron will tell, but I'll repeat it here. Um, I just, you know, he told me, and then I went and looked at, you know, a reporter asks Hillary Clinton, you know, what really keeps you up at night? and she says what are we going to do with all these unemployed people right it's what capitalists it's it's what trump's talking about right trump is talking about addressing the unemployment problem that's what's behind his border wall that's what he thinks the remedy to the fentanyl epidemic is the opioid epidemic he wants to use politics to bring jobs home to America. That's what his trade policy was about, right? These people are about addressing the crisis of the commodity form of labor. That's what all politics in capitalism is about, right? In, in that sense, you know, but what's happened in, what's happened in the 20th century is that the state, that state capitalism has become identified with Marxism right and that is a fundamental problem right in that sense socialism becomes indistinguishable from like the kaiserreich on a war footing right there was like the model is not like you know taking over private property for the sake of like the war economy but in in a fundamental way that's what both the you know wealth that's both what the new deal social democratic west and the stalinist east came to look like right in america no less than in the soviet union the model was war right that's why they talked about the war on poverty it's why that's why the working class thought you know maybe this vietnam war will keep us like all employed
0: Well, isn't that still the 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 uh talking
2: glory days yeah i'm sorry jason i didn't we
0: fight these amorphous wars drugs poverty like you said um i mean the war on poverty was the derivative
2: right it's a great moment of the emancipation of women right it's when Mm -hmm. it's when of course black people were drawn out of the south a great moment of migration right mm-hmm. that black people were drawn into the cities of the north to to, to power the war effort right to, to power the arsenal of democracy right um and of course you know the united states was a better worker state than the soviet union was in the sense that like workers were still immigrating from the soviet union to the united states right because it was a better place to be a worker um right the, I would, in other words, I would say we need to think about the failure of socialism in England, France, Britain, the United States, Germany, Japan. Like, can we please talk about socialism in the core of capitalism? Not as like a developmental project, like, not like, look, they industrialized the Soviet Union or see China's done really well after, you know pretty long and horrific experience um can we talk about like completing the american revolution please right can we talk about put it because that's the only meaning that's it until there's socialism mm-hmm. in the united states mm-hmm. there's no socialism in the world it's just that goddamn simple i mean right? there's a lot of countries that don't
0: agree with you The whole world up hey Hey, Spencer, Grenada will agree with you, right?
2: Um, What do you mean by that? I don't follow. Well,
0: me. I mean, Grenada tried in 83.
2: I'm just saying that, you know, look, if we even created like a mm-hmm. socialist party with like 3% of the people of the United States, 4%, like, you know, that's what they had under Eugene. Mm-hmm. It would be a geopolitical revolution. It would transform the Palestinian-Israeli question. It would transform the war in Ukraine. It would transform the China-Taiwan question. It would be an event that would ramify throughout the world. Just like something as simple as the overthrow of Jim Crow was a worldwide event, was the galvanizing event of the middle of the 20th century. It wasn't khrushchev's 20th party congress speech right it was the political transformation of the global new deal that was effected through the civil rights movement right events in the u.s because people still know people in china know i mean i was just i was just watching some video of japanese people talking and they were like i really you know i I really want to travel around the world I really want to go to America because I want to experience that freedom. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, you laugh, but it's still real, right? It's still, you know, we still, you know, we need a left that will take that legacy. Like, the, like every Cold War lie about America and make it true. Because all those Cold War lies had a seed of truth. Mm -hmm. Of course they did. Right? Like, of course, my mother in law in Calcutta, when I first met her, Mm -hmm. could tell me all about the American Civil War and Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Because she ain't never read any Indian politician who could say something like the Gettysburg Address. That's just that simple.
3: Spencer, let me ask you a question. What do you deal with those? What are your thoughts on those on the left who will say that the heightened contradictions of capitalism are at the apex in America and that to have socialism in the rest of the world, you would have to neutralize the capacity for America to function as an empire first?
2: Well, sure. I mean, where do all our cops come from? Right? They come from the army. Right we are enemies of the, of, of this bloated American imperial state. You know, I would simply, you know, it, I, I talk about it in my book in terms of thinking about great Britain as Bonapartist. Yeah. Right. It doesn't have like a large domestic army, right. It's not like Prussia. It's not a bunch of jackbooted, you know, soldiers in the streets, but, when it comes to time to you know to intimidate or put down the the Chartists, the working class party in eighteen forty-eight, you have all of these former colonial officers that you can deputize. Right? We deputize all of these, you know, former soldiers into our domestic police force. Right? They are you know, the, the overseas expression of the American empire is rooted in the domestic reality of capitalism, and vice versa. The fact that we have to police our poverty, that we have to police this, you know, rotten, you know, disintegrating capitalist society the way that we do is Spencer, the, our the empire p- and vice versa.
0: The picture you're painting is very frightening, and I think People might be a little too distant from how frightening that picture is.
3: If we go back,
0: well, if we go back, and I'm not disagreeing with the picture you're painting at all. I just want to elaborate on the horrific nature of it, and maybe, and maybe make it a little more vivid. If you think about 1992, when the riots Hmm. happened in Los Angeles, there's a great documentary that is just uh, footage. It's about an hour and plus of just footage from news footage to on the ground people that had camcorders back then, right? Before the ubiquitous nature of our surveillance state that we keep on. Uh-huh. And when you see the National Guard the fact that we're 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 pointing guns at our own people, right? And this is just the National Guard. We we didn't right. we, we weren't in a 20-year war yet. So now what you're saying is, and again, I'm not disagreeing with this, I just want to make it a little clearer. You're taking people that have already seen combat in some shape or form overseas. And they're already programmed to find the bad guy. And part of policing is. You are the good guy. You have to go home at night. And these people that you're supposed to protect, bad guy. You probably don't even know who the good person is anymore because everybody is the bad guy. And sending these cats out to police poverty as we do. January 6th, is never going to happen again because I mean, you're going to feel you're, you're going to feel very comfortable with opening fire
2: i mean look that the democrats are going to let more white riots happen right they love white riots yeah right they they let charlottesville happen and they let january sixth happen make no mistake it was democratic politicians all the way down uh from the governor to the mayor to the chief of police in charlottesville you know the the, 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 the mayor of washington dc all the bureaucrats in washington you know they like quiet riots they because it feeds their fucking bullshit, right um and obviously you know those people on january 6th and i mean they, these are like 50 year old like real estate agents right right these people were dying right when they talk about the people who were killed right? You know, they, were people were killed. they were dying from the, I'm getting some feedback here uh, from someone. They were dying from the crowd control shit that the, the cops were using, right? The, yeah. Um, the tear gas, they were like, that's just made for 20-year-old, like, you know, city demonstrations, not for like a bunch of dumb old people. Uh, but to your point, like, obviously, like when socialism really developed, right? If you like read, say, the late Frederick Engels. Mm. Uh, You know, he's talking about developing socialism within the army in Germany. He's talking about, like, splitting the army, right? Mm -hmm. He's talking about neutralizing, neutralizing the repressive capacity of the state from within, right? And they'll use these analogies like Christianity infecting the Roman army and stuff like this right because they're evading censorship but like that's what they're talking about they're talking about socialist propagandizing within the military and of course you know if you talk to adolf like that's where he started right he used to do that stuff with the uh socialist workers party right Mm -hmm. he would work with soldiers outside of uh you know military training facilities in the u.s um right all of you socialists have this this memory right of socialism operating even within uh you know the armed forces you know what i would say is twofold like look there are bad guys like i don't every like whatever confirmed islamic terrorist that the military killed like i'm not worried about that right that's not my objection to the military is that they're out there like shooting these fascists who were enemies of the left. That is just, that is not the whole story of that war of those wars, mm-hmm. right? They are destructive. They are self undermining. They ultimately feed that kind of politics. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, in the same way, of course, you know, uh, the cops are there because there's a time, you know, there are times when people need a man with a gun Who's authorized to use it? Right. The cops don't exist for no reason. Mm -hmm. Right. They exist for a reason. Right. So, like, we have to understand the necessity of it. Right. And a lot of times people will hear this as like a defense. It's not a, Marx isn't, you know, this is just, this is just what Marx is saying. Right. Marx is saying, look, if you want to manage capitalism, without the proletariat coming into power this is what's going to look like it's going to look like unemployed people it's going to look like drug addicts it's going to look like all kinds of street hustles and survival right that people are going to be engaged in that are, that's then going to call in the state to deal with it right that's that's what the bonapartist or executive state under capitalism is. And it's not fundamentally on behalf of the capitalist class. Mm-hmm. It's on behalf of, of a society as a whole whose freedom is alienated from it. The capitalists, can, you know, Marx famously writes in the 18th Brumaire that you know, bourgeois fanatics for order were shot down on their balconies by drunken soldiery in Louis Bonaparte's coup d'etat, right? The bourgeoisie can be offed, right? Elon Musk can have his property taken away from him, just Mm -hmm. like Kanye West can have his property taken Mm -hmm. away from him, right? You can be canceled And, of course, that looks much more brutal in in Russia or in China, right, Um, where, you know, capitalists are just sort of pure products of politics. Um, And so, you know, this is a society that is not just in conflict at a class level. In fact, the class conflict is, as it were, a phenomenal expression of an underlying contradiction, right? That's why you can have capitalism without capitalists, right? Hmm. Which is, you know, the way I would talk about, for instance, the Soviet Union, right? You can line the capitalists up and shoot them and you will still have this problem, right? What? what Marx calls the persistence of bourgeois right, the persistence of this contradiction. When I say that all of these politicians are socialists, what I mean is they're all dealing with the fact that the working class is putting each other out of work. Mm. Right? They're all dealing with the problem that for me to go to work, I have to put you out of work. Right. And that goes like that's a pro, like that. That's like, this is how you can begin to talk about racism. This is how you can begin to talk about immigration. This is how you can begin to talk about like the passport regime that controls the international flow of people. Right. You have to understand that there is a that without organization, without parties, without unions, without a whole array of working class institutions that can try to at least render this subject to the working class's own control, it just looks like a war of all against all. Because it is. Mm -hmm. Right? It, It is that. Right? It is the case that Right, and, and that's why we live in a world of mass conformity. Like, well, maybe if I cut my hair or maybe I re- wear the right shirt, or maybe if I'm a Democrat, maybe if I have the right opinions, maybe if I don't speak up or speak out of turn, right, then I will be able to be one of the chosen ones, right? This is how people deal with this as, a, as an individual crisis, right, is, is through a self-imposed authoritarianism, right? like they impose conformity upon themselves as like a survival strategy, right? So, you know, like politics is like, you we have to, like I say, if, if the working class in the United States just began to build the least bit of confidence for which it has to be independent, right, it has to be independent, like, Look at the, this. The whole point of this like railway workers thing is that they let the Democrats handle it. They, the Democrats didn't want that strike before the election. Of course. As soon as they agreed to that, they gave up their power. The point of, should be your election is your problem, <laughs> Mr. Mm-hmm. Capitalist. Right. We're settling our problems here with you. Right. If you're not clear about that, you can't, you know, like there's no, it doesn't matter how many Starbucks get unionized. Mm. Right. You're just talking about like setting up, you know, a kind of labor brokerage. That's all that a union can be outside of politics. You know, it ends up being who has a who has a union card and who doesn't, and controlling access to that. Right. Um, you know, which is why unions got broken in the nineteen seventies and eighties. Right? You can't issue a union card to every woman and every black person who's asking for a job in those sectors. And mm. in the end, they just that emancipation meant smashing the unions. As we which, saw with Reagan in this
0: first term. Pascal, I'm sure you have something you would like to add to this.
3: So Based on the formula you're talking about, what exactly are the practical steps to developing this type of socialism that you're talking about that actually displaces capitalism? For me, one of the reasons why, as much as I may agree that democratic party entryism is is beyond limited, maybe even you know doomed to failure, is that I'm kind, kind of under, I'm under the realization that. We haven't had a left or leftists in this country for over 50 years. We've been in this kind of counter-revolutionary period since the late 60s, early 70s. And the fact that we actually have some people who realize, who can verbalize and say capitalism is the problem is an advance from where we were definitely when you and I were growing up. So instead of simply saying that, oh, this is not going to work and everything's going to fail, why don't we at least try to organize around the, the equal understanding that we all have that capitalism and imperialism and sexism and racism are the problem, and develop a strategy to expand that politics amongst a cadre of people who can implement and real realize that into either a socialist party or a politics that tra- challenges the forces of capital. I don't think it has to be a zero sum game. I think it's a matter of incrementally trying to do what it is to take certain steps. So, as much as I may agree with you that I think democratic is capitalism- how-
2: if your, if your organizational skill lies in that direction, right? I'm ready to join your party, brother, right? If we can start up a... So I don't know who's going to do it, right? I don't really think I'm particularly skilled at doing that. I, you know, I'm just a guy who reads books and, and tries to understand them. And all that I'm saying at that level is that that's important, right? Intellectualism is important capitalism is like a hard problem to think about and the the deepest problem the deepest aspect of it is what jason was talking about is the history of socialism and its failure that's a really deep problem right that you have to read all kinds of stuff and think about in a really like motivated way and you can't let like You know, being an academic or being a successful journalist or anything like it—it doesn't get you any promotions. I'll just put it to you that way. It does not get you promoted in this life to think through the problems of socialism. And all that I'm trying to say is, like, that is a part of the problem. A part of the problem is a fearful and cowardly and simply ignorant intelligentsia, right? We want some leftist intellectuals who are serious about this problem, who are serious about like thinking about the legacy of Lenin and thinking about the legacy of Karl Marx and this history in all of its ramifications in terms of all that can answer all of this anti-Marxist crap. Right, that can answer all the postmodernists and the poststructuralists and the postcolonialists, and you know, and the fake allies that are Democrats. Right.
3: Well, I, well my my response to you, Spencer, is we don't have that cadre. We had we had we had a show the other day, and we, I think we talked about it with Matt Crispin, is that I think it was Crispin or someone else. We talked about how part of the problem is that we don't have a bench of left intellectuals who are really. i mean we have left intellectuals who really can take it to the system because frankly we're still trying to convince people that the the system isn't working
2: that's why i referred to that interview right i I thought that interview was kind of you know raising a bunch of stuff you know and i was just like screaming like can we please talk about the history of socialism right like please Right, like there, we have to be. Are, are we talking? In other words, like Matt Chrisman is like, well, it's going to happen in our everyday lives, right? And I'm like, it ain't happening happen in my everyday life, like,
1: <laughs> right? Well, I mean,
2: I'm, I'm I live in in Virginia. It's not like the epicenter of like the unionization effort or whatever. Like no. I'm just, here, I'm just here with my books and this camera and this microphone and my friends and my wife, right? I am not building socialism in my everyday life, but I can participate in social intellectualism. And Matt Chrisman, will you please do that? Will you please say you're not an entertainer, right? This isn't just like this throwaway experience that you're engaged in. It's a serious, it could be, it it addresses a serious problem. Well, I think serious. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you, Spencer. Sorry. Please do. I think part of the problem is,
0: and I, I'm not going to speak for Matt Crispin. I, I, that was my first time meeting him. Seemed like a nice guy, passionate. Um, it, but it, I'll be really transparent. It is kind of hard sometimes because we take ourselves seriously on the show. We we do put in the work. We do do the reading, right? um it has it has tucson giggles um (laughs) taking yourself that seriously i think for us because we're still young in the sense of some of we're just young right i grew up watching chomsky cornell west old videos of malcolm x i grew up at the tail end of huey newton still showing up on my my television set locally as a bay area native wow. Um, you, you know, so You're not I'm 45. I I I so I'll remember when he died. Uh I grew up in the shadow of those people who cast an enormous shadow. Oh yeah. And I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for the people on the screen. Um it's hard for me to think of myself like these people. I try to do something important. I try to bring people like you on to have important conversations. Plus,
2: it's a different thing, right? I mean, th- there are there's a whole array of things that have to be done, right? Mm. Papers have to be edited, books have to be written, shows have to be hosted, right? It's important, right? Um, and you know, people, you know, like like you know, Doug Lane is, is is really great at at interviewing people. You know, I I tell them like, you know. You don't have to debate everybody, <laughs> you know, interviewing is a real skill. And I'm, I'm serious about that. I, you know, I, I've published a lot of interviews myself. Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole array of things that have to be done, right? We need, we need socialist doctors. We need socialist scientists, engineers. We need people who can talk about all kinds of stuff and can, you know, th- this is, you know, I'm all that I'm saying is that, you know, there is like, a, an actual you know it, it you know the the joke that i tell my students is look you know two people at walmart get together and they say you know hey let's form a union mm-hmm. and the other one you know and one says to the other but you know didn't that lead to the gulag <laughs> <laughs> right because like it, it, there's oh, a well. whole there's a whole history right that again like you don't have to study to know it right? Like it's, it's in the world that we're born into, right? And the, the, that history does weigh upon us. It is here with us. It is happening, right? And I, and I talk, I hear these leftists sometimes who think that capitalism is like a logical problem, right? Or something. It's like, no, you're in history. That's what we're dealing with. It's weighing like a nightmare Mm -hmm. upon our brains, Right. It's not that we can't like give the capitalists an argument. Right. I'm like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no, we can. Mm-hmm. Right. These people are not serious intellectuals. They never have been. They don't really have to be.
0: No. Right. No, they don't. They all don't.
2: they have to do is sit back and watch us fail, mm-hmm. which is all that the right ever is. Mm. Right. The right is just cashing out the failures of the left. It has no project, and it has no it has no intellectual resources of its own, right? It's like Adam Smith, right? Adam Smith is revolutionary, straight up anti-slavery, anti-colonialism, revolutionary in as revolutionary as Karl Marx in his day. It, what he's dealing with, he's as committed to the emancipation of the people as anybody else. Right. He's not apologizing for anything. Right. The right just takes the old superseded arguments of the left. Right. Fascism is a form of socialism. Like, Come on. Right. It is. Right. It's about, you know, the. that's the hard punishment. for people
0: to, to grasp those. Spencer, right? you and know,
2: uh, cashing out the failures of the left. That's
0: it. But, but that's. I'm, again, I'm not saying you're wrong and I'm not disagreeing with you. It's it's just when you have this burgeoning group of smiley-faced new leftists and they're reading about all these wonderful things and socialism is going to give you health care and new shoes and all the things, and then you find out what Mussolini was a socialist.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, these young people – They want to know, you know. All we, it's like when I hear professors blame the students. I never trust that. I'm like, you're the problem, not your students. Your students are raw curiosity, right? People who present. Go ahead.
1: Oh, sorry. That's Sun Tzu, Art of War. I'm on to you, Spencer.
2: You have to. When people present themselves to be like told about Marxism, let's just take them up on that. That's all I'm saying. Because it's actually the most optimistic fucking thing that's ever been thought. It it is it is the opposite of the black pill, doom and gloom, misery, dream of destruction you know, kind of Cormac McCarthy, the road imagination that seems to dominate the millennials now. Right. What it's saying is, look, all we need to do is undertake a Marxist critique of the failure of Marxism and reboot this socialist project and achieve it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can have like peace on it, on this planet, we can, like, have a world without the state, without the coercion of man by man, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I believe in that. I believe in that as a possibility, right? It's just, That really is, you know, ultimately a problem of, like, humans figuring out what to do with their own, like, complicated freedom, right? Because that's really all that capitalism is, is, like a kind of a freedom that's like run away from us right like you know marx has that image of like the magician whose spells are like getting away from him right like it's <laughs> like a fantasia image, right right we're like the our the, you know it's a contradiction of the forces and relations of our per, you know social reproduction um and and so i, I don't think it's like You know, like, I don't know what the kids like. The kids, like, what do you call the like red eye thing that they do on their memes? You know, when somebody's based, right? They've got like (laughs) and all this stuff, right? And it, it seems like. You know, they think everything is like some like I don't know heavy like dark suicidal guitar riff or something.
0: <laughs> you know, it's the success. It's the success of the idea that stuff like grunge was was moment changing. You know, when we go back and think about the moments, I was uh, so I was talking to my neighbor, hmm. uh, who who. I'll keep him nameless. I don't think he said where he lives yet, but my, my neighbor who's in the same pundit sphere. And we were having a debate in my kitchen about the importance of something like even the railway strike. And I was like, I think when the story gets told by CNN on the 2020s, won't even get mentioned. And he, and he pushed back. And I was like, no. I, I, I think Kanye West... Saying that Jews are the center of all evil is more important to the media narrative, even in small spaces like this, than the railway strike will be when we think about large moments of this of this decade. And we're only two years into this decade, right? Because we don't Kanye
2: really- and Kyrie are expressing the heart of the Democratic Party, mm. right? Mm. Which is that it's whoa, a bunch whoa, of whoa, whoa, whoa. right, hey. and it's a bunch Speaking of fucking. Up-
1: Speak
2: on S- it. Society <laughs> is composed of tribes, right? This is what they have internalized. And they are they're just parroting the narrative. This is what the Democrats, you know, whatever diversity bullshit looks like. Right? It's a it's a massive argument against the existence of society. Right. Um You know, I I see that someone in the comment section says, you know, oh, you say fascism is socialism. It seems like there needs to be more nuance. Well, let me tell you, we're breeding a far right form of the state right now in the name of socialism, Mm. in the name of anti-fascism and keeping out Trump. we are destroying every legal protection that citizens have in this country never mind trying to organize socialism right obviously organizing socialism is downstream from citizens having some rights right and you know you can put the the congress you can you can ring fence it you can put the national guard around it the congress can have its own police force which is just manifestly unconstitutional, right? The Congress is the opposite of the executive branch. They precisely don't have cops, <laughs> right? On and on and on, right? The, the, this is the left giving you the right. This is the left giving you a very dystopian form of capitalism it's a degraded, like it's like compared to the struggle from 1914 to 1940 in Europe for socialism. Obviously it's farcical because there never really was a bid for it. Right. But, you know, in other words, fascism was the cashing out of the failure of German socialism. And in that sense, It is the product of that struggle, right? Of course it is. It's why we have fascism that lets itself get thrown out of power by elections. Because Mm. our fascism isn't really an anti-socialism, right? You had to learn from socialists that when you take power, you never give it back. When you take power, it's a revolution. When you take power, it's a new Reich, right? the socialists take that i mean the the fascists take that from socialism of course they do where else did that idea come from right and of course fascism as a national socialism is the doppelganger of socialism in one country and i don't care what these tankies in the comments say (laughs) (laughs) right they need to study their history Really that's did. the hard part, right,
0: Pascal? Do you do you have anything to add to that?
2: Uh, no, I'm sitting here
3: observing uh, this uh, belief that socialism is the precursor to fascism. I mean, I'll think about that. Considering the millions of communists that were killed by the Nazis,
2: I don't know. Uh, the two uh, millions of communists were killed by Stalin too. That's true, right? The, the, so, who kills socialists but socialists? I mean, can we get real about that, right? Um, I'm just saying that you.
0: Where does Dugan come out of? Dugan comes out of Marxism.
1: I, I mean, <laughs> you opened up another Pandora's box. box? Like,
2: I'm isn't sorry. This guy a crackpot. Like he comes out of like, <laughs> I don't know what. You know the, the czarist secret police.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You know, and the Tsarist secret police organized union, you. know, and it's great. Father Gapon oh you know, got himself shot and and led to the 1905 revolution. He was in the pay of the fucking czarist police, right? As was the whole church in Russia. <laughs> uh, you know, the uh, it. Let me put it to you this way: I I think what I see on the, you know, from these tankies.
1: There's it, tanks, there's literal tanks.
2: These tank, <laughs> tankies, I think my microphone must have gone out, in the chat, is what mm-hmm. I was talking to with um, Matt, the other Matt, uh, that you had on Nietzsche. Matt
0: McManus. Matt McManus. Matt
2: McManus, right? Mm-hmm. These young people, are trying to figure out what's left and what's right. First mm-hmm. of all, <clears throat> right? They want to say, like, you know, Stalin good, like mm-hmm. he's on our team, mm-hmm. and you know, I don't know what um, Heidegger bad, Heidegger or bad, I, I wish they said bad. Heidegger bad. Actually, um, you know,
0: Hitler, Hitler's so bad. Public
2: the Republicans bad, right? Well, yeah, um, but he, they also. I think
0: there's kind of a general consensus that Hitler's bad,
2: right? Right. Yeah. Um, you, know, I would say that Hitler's lame, right? Is what I would say. Like he's not like interesting, right? But there are things that are interesting that are not clearly left-wing. Like art, for instance. Right, You won't get very far thinking about art, deciding whether it's left-wing or right-wing. And you won't get very far thinking about Nietzsche if your first question is, is it left-wing or right-wing? Or Freud, right? Or, like I say, poetry or a novel, right? Like There's just a, you know... The, the lobotomization of the young has meant that they don't really want to think about how deep the problems run. And if Nietzsche helps you think about how deep the problem runs or Freud helps you to think about it, then they're Marxists. It's just that simple. In other words, Marxism is the project of transforming the whole of society. And it, that means taking on every insight and if you don't have like if your marxism can't take bring those on board it's probably not going to be adequate to the project of transforming society this is what i mean by there's a kind of a cowardice amongst the intellectuals that i really amongst younger people that the 60s intellectuals didn't have like they were much more willing to try to like think through it all however failed that turned out to be uh, can I try- offer- yeah,
1: sorry. Can Please. I offer a, a tepid defense of Matt Chrisman?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I, I think that um
2: Matt Chrisman or Matt McManus.
1: Matt Chrisman.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Mc- McManus needs no defense. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Chrisman, I think Chapo Chap House was very popular during the 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 high days of Bernie. And I think it was particularly devastating for that crew and for the fans of the show when Bernie, you know, obviously had to suspend his campaign. Right. I think he was, Crispin was coming to understand where his responsibility lied in that, laid in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he didn't realize it until it was over and then felt, Bad for where he may have led people. His uh, his his subsequent Kush blog.
2: I, I think that's very is, insightful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I think it's
1: very personal for him, and he says that the insights that he offers are just him thinking about himself, really, and right. It's not meant for other people to be extrapolating for themselves.
2: That's why I meant. That's what I said to Jason that he's very passionate. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I do think that uh, he takes some responsibility. He he tries to take responsibility for that, for what he was talking people into. Mm -hmm. Right. And that means talking them around this present moment. Right. Which is, of course, one of disappointment. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, and it's very much a, you know, be careful what you wish for moment. Um not that Bernie's president, but you know, that is a major wing of the Democratic Party today and a component of their you know, perhaps most militant component of their party. Um what I am saying is okay, like maybe it was inevitable that. This, the discontent with the, uh, with the crisis of neoliberalism was going to be attracted into, was going to be drawn into the capitalist parties. Because it was, right? That's, that's Trump and, and Bernie. Um, and that was going to make an appeal to this left that had grown up from the anti-war movement and occupy right And, and obviously you know it's gonna it's gonna be about like it's gonna be the opposite of occupy in the sense it's gonna be about power not about like making a demonstration of powerlessness um and all that i'm saying you know so so maybe like we couldn't have started a socialist party coming just because there was was Jasmine and they were talking about Karl Kautsky, because they were, right? But let's try to hold on to what that, you know, or at least register Mm -hmm. that there was a desire for socialism in that generation, in our time. And it wasn't exhausted by Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders campaign didn't take up all that that generation desired. In many ways, it was a curtailing and a kind of um compromise. And you know, you know, because because Gene Bajalan will, you know, he'll always, you know, he'll he'll say you were a sectarian then and you're a sectarian now. <laughs> Right. And I'm just saying, when do we get to bring up Marxism? Like I couldn't bring it up then because it would spoil Bernie's chance to win the nomination. And now I can't bring it up because it's like a. you think it's a downer. It's not. Um, That's all my point about Matt Christman is, is like um, he was in Chapo Trap House and he does have a certain credibility with his generation. And I I think that he's had an education that is potentially better than anything you could get in any university, right? He read from the School of Life, yeah. and all all I'm saying is read more deeply, brother.
0: Well, I mean, first of all, you want to talk about Marxism more? And then, and then you know, we're, we're coming up on three hours. We have to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. I, I think first and foremost, we have to somehow take it out of where it, where it sits, where some people are love, I hate to use the term, gatekeeping. In the hallowed halls of elitist academia and elitist, you know, high art and, and high thought. And as long as this theory remains um, either the childish endeavor of a young college student or an, an old professor, and, and we don't really understand its working class roots, even in the modern history. Which is I want to do a show on this thing, uh, the same murder of the workers' rights activists in uh, that were trying to unionize the uh, the factories in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's so important to talk about that history when we talk about Marxism and socialism and even communism um, from the standpoint of Black communists leading that movement um, in 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 Charlotte, North Carolina. That were that were part of the working class. That were part of the church as well. Um, when we erase that and it stays in the, in the hollowed halls of almost abstract thought, then we're going to keep asking the same questions over and over again.
2: Right. I mean, I, you know, just to kind of bring it back around to, to Pascal's first question, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would say that, um, Rather than thinking about, you know, you know, rather than the like the academic trend of which is really what Cedric Robinson's legacy is today. You know, it's all about the new history of capitalism. Right? Everybody reads Cedric Robinson, right? It's it's, it's totally mainstream. Um, let's talk about the 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 centrality of the American struggle for freedom, the American Revolution writ large, which black people have always been central to, which the question of slavery, the overcoming of slavery, Jim Crow had always been central to, right? it is since sense, what I've been pleading for, whether talking about 1776 or talking about what Marx was engaged with, the American Civil War, or talking about the 20th century, Is to say, look, the United States is it it's the project of socialism Socialism is profound in this country. It's not a mistake, mistake. it's like black people just happen to be like in the working class and like struggling (laughs) for socialism, right? (laughs) This is like this is the working class of the United States. Right? Mm. The problem of the, the problem of racism, as Adolf Reed points out is a class problem. It's about the constitution of the working class, right? As a political form, right? And at that level, right, we don't need like a black caucus because we don't need a white labor movement, right? We don't need two labor movements. We need one labor movement because there's one class enemy, right? Et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, That's where like the rubber hits the road when you're talking about like all of this identity politics, mm-hmm. right? Are you gonna tell me about identity politics in the working class? No, You're going to talk, you know, I wanna talk about organizing the people who are experiencing the exploitation and who, can, who know about it, right? Because their struggles are gonna come from the, that immediate experience, right? And, the, and, and a fundamental element of that experience is the absence and necessity of their forming political and social union as a class right their exploitation is linked to that it's not linked to the you know it's not fundamentally linked to the fact that some are black and some are white it's fundamentally linked to the fact that there's no socialist workers movement right that's like the struct- underlying re- structuring reality of it. So I agree, right, that we need to talk about this history. It's a long, you know, but this idea that like this, I mean, quite frankly, this rotten, you know, anti-Americanism, this idea that like um, um, this country is not revolutionary and that the task of socialist revolution isn't plainly posed by our history, squarely posed by our history and at stake in it's at stake in the American civil war. The American civil war is the occasion for the formation of the first socialist international full stop, right? It is what Karl Marx sees. It's the solidarity of the English working class with the cause of the union that is the first act of international socialist solidarity, right? Because that is an act of the working class saying, no, we're not going to let you smash the union blockade and, and, and diplomatically recognize the Confederacy in the name of the working class, in the name of getting cotton for us to work on in these mills in Manchester and putting us back to work no we would rather these mills be closed and we receive no pay than the ruling class act in this manner right and this is when the british had tens of thousands of troops in canada ready to invade the north on behalf of the confederacy right it was stopped by the working class in britain because you know and be, because america's history not only impacts the rest of the world its history has always been connected to that of the rest of the world. And, you know, we're dealing with this national minded left that just wants to, you know, it somehow wants to have open borders and a $20 an hour minimum wage and universal health care. It's completely Stalinist nationalist and absurdly utopian. If you want a welfare state, it's going to have to be closed borders i mean like that that's just fucking obvious a welfare state is entitling people on the basis of their citizenship to certain you know government programs these people are anti-internationalist in their thinking I mean, the Democratic Party is going to do that to you, right? It's going, it's you know, obviously worse than Stalinism and turning people into like nationalists, right? So I, I think that um, we need to think about the United States and its, its role in the Cold War, yes, uh, but, you know, as I will say, the, the United States never defeated socialism, not really. Right. I know that you're that that to Tous- that I'm not I'm sorry, not in Tucson, but I know that Pascal's going to balk at that.
1: <laughs>
2: but no, it didn't stop socialism.
0: Well, you can't stop an idea, right?
2: Well, the fate of socialism in the world isn't what was what was being fought over in Vietnam. No, it just isn't. You know. It isn't. There wasn't a project of, you know, one, two, many Vietnams that was like a viable road to socialism, right? That's a total fucking myth. And the people who believe that were... They were really jacked up on the on what we were talking about last time with Franz Fanon. They were jacked up on decolonization um, as a kind of really ersatz project for socialism as a as a, as a consolation prize and they, and they tell you that it is about socialism and it ain't right it's about decolonization you know which is fine didn't really do that much for the people of those countries did a little bit um good and bad uh, really isn't it's just a this. This is this is like rank Stalinism. You know the idea like who's the better friend of the Third World? You know the Soviets or the Chinese? Uh, that that's somehow the revolution. This is all like very very far down <coughs> if education rabbit hole. The issue was the complete subordination of the American working class movement to the Democratic Party. That's like that's a much profounder defeat, which the Communist Party of the United States was instrumental in achieving. Right? The subordination of the American working class to the Democratic Party is a much greater defeat for world socialism in the long run, in terms of people suffering in history than what happened in Vietnam. And that like that, I, I think people think it's like crazy or something, but like you know it's just a flat fact that you and i the people who are listening to this in the first world our actions are more consequential for the fate of world history than anything that people can do in in most places in sub-saharan africa
3: Yeah, like, coltan is what keeps our cell phones working that comes out of comes out of africa
2: Right, but I'm saying that the politics adequate to their... They can't mount a politics in sub-Saharan Africa that is adequate to addressing their own own unfreedom. Unless The resources that keep us alive and feed us... us The the resources
3: that keep us alive and feed us come from them. And part of the reason why they can't have politics is whenever they develop politics, we stick a shiv in
2: their back consistently. Right, which is why we know nothing about their election and they know everything about ours, right? They know who the president of the United States is. They know what happened in that election because what happens here is extremely consequential and the responsibility for American leftists is very high, right? Our, the prosperity and the position that the United States is in in the world is not a function of slavery, it's a function of revolution. Of course it is. Revolution has made the first world. The countries that had bourgeois revolutions are the core of capitalism. Or the ones who had communist revolutions are developed. Right? Britain, France, the United States, these are the core countries of capitalism. By extension, Germany and Russia, socialist revolutions right? We have a responsibility in the first world. The, the legacy of those revolutions is at stake. And it has led the world for a very long time. And it does nothing to say that, well, everything that's bad in the world is a function of the countries that dominate the world. I mean, all that that is to say is that we have a responsibility to achieve socialism here, right? That's all that I'm saying. Like. Oh, you know, and the fact of the matter is that um, we we can't. You cannot organize the working class by telling them you are responsible for the suffering of people around the world. Nobody believes that. It's not just white people who don't believe that. Black <laughs> t- <working laughs> t- people don't believe that. Good to know, good to know. <laughs> no, nobody believes, well, I mean, do, really? Do, do do people really think that working class white people are like, yeah, I'm happy to enjoy like the super profits of imperialism? It was no. 55% of working class white people voted for Trump too. So I mean, it doesn't tell me anything. And that doesn't tell me anything because well, Trump is right. not to the right of Joe Biden. Full stop, Pascal. He's not to the right of Joe Biden. Right, it tells you nothing to say that it isn't the far right. I'm telling you, the who are the warmongers in the Ukraine? Who is the party of the CIA and the FBI? Why don't you call that the far right?
3: Spencer, I've never, been a, I've never been a Democrat in my life. I don't vote for Democrats. If you
2: say they're far right. You're a Democrat. I,
3: I, I never said that the Republicans were far right. I said they voted for Trump. There's a difference between Trump and George isn't W. Bush.
2: Trump, isn't Trump better than George W. Bush? In what way? Better in what way? Well, he isn't like a stupid Ayn Rand quoting libertarian fool, right? He at least will try <laughs> to, to go and ask, you know, he doesn't he doesn't dismiss the black vote. He asked for it. Right. Isn't that better? No. I think it's better. I don't. Spencer, real quick, man. I don't, don't, Spencer,
0: I don't real, want anyone calling me the blacks and asking for my vote. Joe Biden didn't do a better job, but, but I'm not going to sit here and say that Trump is better of, than George do W. Bush. The
2: Democrats have earned any like group vote of the working class more than others. I mean,
3: Spencer. Why I agree with you is that we have two bourgeois capitalist parties. Both of them are interested in protecting the interests of capital, and they are not interested in the interests of the working class, black people, brown people, white people, or anywhere else. I agree with that, but that does, that, have have that does not mean that they are not nuanced distinctions. That does not mean that they are not nuanced distinctions between how both parties operate in terms of protecting the interests of capital.
2: Right. And I'm saying that the Democrats are more in the interests of big capital. They run New York City and Chicago and Los Angeles and their friends are on Wall Street more than the Republicans who are kind of a, you know, an amateur hour, really. Right. They don't run this country. They occasionally get the presidency. Right. The Democrats run this country. They run the centers of capital in the United States and their race racket constituent, you know, ethnic constituency politics is as fascistic as anything, you know, is is like the American nationalism is the like USA patriotism of the Donald Trump people. That's what I'm saying. This they are. I right? This is why I'll agree with it. Going into the
3: 50-year counter-revolution, that was not the case. The Republicans were in control of most of the business sector in this country. However, I will agree with since the rise of Clintonian third-wayism, the left flank of capital has definitely become the party of the finance capital in the United States and have taken over that role. And I also do agree that their ridiculous race reductionist politics is part of the way in which they subvert the issues of working class white people, black people, and working class people of all colors to keep them oppressed. However, that does not stop the fact that the Republican Party is the party of reactionary white racists. And it has been for a long time.
2: Really? You don't think so? No, I don't think so. I think the Republicans voted for the Civil Rights Act. I'm, talking about, I didn't say,
3: I'm not talking about the Republicans of 1863. I'm talking about since Nixon. I'm talking Nixon, about 1960. I'm talking in 1960, about the
2: Republicans Barry Goldwater? Barry Goldwater, really? Barry Goldwater is less of a racist than Lyndon B. Johnson in 1960. Barry Goldwater
3: voted against right? right. Barry Goldwater. Uh, I disagree with
2: that wholeheartedly. The well Lyndon B. Johnson was a Dixiecrat. I mean, he was a product of the party machine that ran Jim Crow. I mean, can we just be real for a minute? Yeah. Right? The Republicans have never done anything like that, right? And Donald Trump, Trump didn't even say party of Reagan, right? He didn't say party of Reagan, he said party of Lincoln. Now these guys in the chat are gonna say, oh, Spencer's a Trumpist again all that i'm saying is can we be indifferent to capitals politics this notion that the because what are we talking about the democrats and the left sell a story that we're in a united front against fascism and that united front against fascism unites wall street bankers and the cia and the FBI and the US military with inner city poor black people and other racial minorities in this country in the working class against the white supremacist fascist menace and that's a lie. That's just bullshit Stalinist like play and repeat. It's just the repetition cycle of bad leftism in the service of capitalism. That's what I'm saying. and from and and so i will say that when the republicans say capitalism will put people back to work that's just another project of socialism it's what marx called capitalist socialism
3: Spencer, my response to you is that there's degrees of truth and there's degrees of untruth. Where I agree with you is that the game that the Democrats are playing to try to paint the Republicans as some kind of up hyper-fascist hyper, hyper, hyper fascist is definitely a duplicitous dangerous game. However, that does not mean that there is not a distinct... Increase in reactionary racial nature of the Republican Party since the rise of Trump. We didn't have thirty states saying we don't want to teach Black history or what they call critical race theory anymore because of because of quote unquote the danger it is to our kids you
2: can't Divorce that right. You can't divorce that from the best impulses of the American working class, right? Because the critical race history, the sixteen nineteen project history. That was being pushed was right wing, and I don't every disagree with that. I'm not a fan of that history. Knows it, right? Every socialist knows that the that, that you know. I mean, I don't know. You know, not. I don't know any socialist history in the United States. Whether you're talking about the old abolitionists, or I mean, I'll put it to you this way: Frederick Douglass is to the left of those in the abolitionist movement who thought that the constitution was a compact with hell. Well,
3: Frederick Douglass this, this is
2: where a freedom dot and that—that I mean. that was the left wing of the abolitionist movement. That was the position, uh, the position of the uh, American Socialist Party was that Jefferson and Lincoln, if they were alive today, would be in our party. That we stand in the tradition of the American Revolution. That is the you know, in other words, from a socialist perspective, the United States was founded in 1776, 19, not sixteen nineteen. 1619. Right, and so you can't say that rejecting that is racism. You just can't. Hold on a
3: second. I'm not. First of all, I am not equating. This is a false equivalency. I'm not saying that what anti CRT legislation is fighting is just the 1619 Project. I don't support the 1619 Project on a variety of classes. First of all, it's a bourgeois, black petit bourgeois movement to try to basically get what I call fat back and biscuits from the left flank of capital. So I don't support that project. But what I do I, realize is that there's a lot of legitimate African American and black history in this country that these right-wing reactionaries will not teach under the name is. of fighting CRT. that is going to be blocked. That, that would not have happened if Trump never became president. That would have
2: happened if- The Democrats didn't push all this, you know, garbage history either. Right. That's all I'm saying is that, it, you know, these two people are these these things are hand in glove. Right. The 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 rottenness of, you know, I don't know what, you know, they they couldn't even really get it off the ground. Like the Republicans attempt to, like, rewrite the history books. Right. I think um, Trump put together some ludicrous commission. Right. That never could write a report. But of course, you know, both of these projects are right wing because they're both capitalists. And all I'm saying is it's Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Can we just say it and don't vote and don't be a member of the party and don't knock on doors for them? Right. And don't affiliate your union to them and don't affiliate your civil society organization to them. Right? Can we try to build socialism? That's all that I'm saying. I'm not in favor uh, you. Know, all that I'm saying is that the argument that Trump, I don't even believe that Trump is worse than Paul Ryan. I just don't I don't think he's worse than Mitt Romney. I don't think that he's worse than John McCain and I don't think that he's worse than George W. Bush. I don't. He's, I'm, going
3: he's, to have to I'm going to take a hard disagree with you on that, Trump because what, I, I, what I, believe, I believe that what first of all I'm not that enamored in thinking in painting Trump to be this kind of like super 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 monster, but Trump opens up a politics that is more dangerous than himself. That's the problem no, I have.
2: I, okay, I'll just put let me put it to you this way: he's no worse than the old Republicans than the new Democrats are compared to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, well, Bill Clinton was, was the father of the Democrats. Yeah, but Bill Clinton wasn't mounting a wholesale war against our civil liberties. Joe Biden is, right? Joe Biden is going to, you know, is mounting. Bill Clinton a- was
0: there. He was part of that war. He starts. He he starts deregulation uh, in his first term, and you get the welfare reform. They're much
2: more the the neoliberals Yeah, are not liberal anymore. <laughs> They are illiberal. They are against your rights in a way that like they didn't used to be. Like as I mean, we're, we're kind of we're we're kind of also so they're yeah. just Trump is if he's worse, if you mm-hmm. want to say that he's worse, mm-hmm. he's worse because history's worse.
0: Well, I was gonna say I I think we're we're and the kind, left of is kind of eliminating
2: conspiring in that regression historically. That's what I'm saying. I they're think we're eliminating
0: good. a lot of history that goes into the policies that come out of the times as well. Right. Um, can to say Donald Trump is not worse than George W Bush, George W Bush had eight years and he comes in on the heels of, of 9 11 happens, you know, right when he gets into office. So historically he's always going to sit in a little bit of a different context than Donald Trump. Um, and we, we do have to take that into consideration. We also have to remember the context in which Bill Clinton comes into office after 12 years of Republican rule. Neoliberalism, you know, we discussed it as a Republican thing. Now it's more of a Democratic thing. He definitely takes that ball and, and runs with it. Obama takes a ball and runs with it. After eight years of Bush Jr., you know, we, 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 right. we're... we're I and think Obama
2: I, I, what I, what was I would like to do of the crisis, right Obama you know, came you know his presidency is overshadowed by the by the crisis that hit mm-hmm. before that election was over mm-hmm. right And what we saw in 2016 was a rejection of Obama. Right. Mm -hmm. And the Republicans that would work with him from that. That's what people mean by the mainstream today. Right. Whether it was Bernie or Trump, I, for one, am glad that Trump broke the old Republican Party. I wish Bernie Sanders had broken the old Democratic Party. We have we have a crisis that we aren't really addressing, that we're highly inadequately addressing Mm -hmm. because we are displacing that crisis to the technocracy. The reason we are letting the technocrats deal with it, the reason why we don't even know what goes on in the Ukrainian war, journalists aren't allowed, etc., Right. the reason why there's a war on journalism today, the reason why Democrats don't even want to know about visibility filtering at Twitter, right? the reason why the political message from the Democratic Party is you don't want to know, that's the technocratic speak. Saying, let us handle it. We're the smart ones in the room. It's anti-political. What Mm -hmm. I like about Trump is that it was political. What I would have liked about Bernie is to make the crisis in the Democratic Party political. There is a neoliberalism ain't working. It isn't going to, it isn't working anyway. But what the Clinton, Biden, and in effect, Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez are telling you is let the crisis be handled by the people who know what they're doing. Let the crisis be handled at a technocratic level. I and I think that that is a terrible miseducation for, a whole, for the whole world. I mean I think that you know the ulti- you know the reason why as I said before illiterate people were smarter in the 19th century than, than you know what Biden calls the best gener- the best educated generation in history right the reason why we're educated fools is because our experience teaches us nothing right because we allow our freedom to be completely Displaced from us, as though it we weren't responsible for it, as well, we though also, it their world somehow, right? And we just are all reduced to sort of observers and opinionators and bloviators. You know,
0: also our freedom is d- defined by you know our consumer choices. Look, we we have to it, we've been going on three and a half hours, Yeah, Spencer, yeah we got know on. it's late where you are. I'm afraid what Mrs. to say to me. Uh, when wait, when I come to the east coast in a few weeks, I don't want to get a stern talking to you about why I'm taking uh, the husband away from whatever it is you're supposed to be doing in the damn house.
2: Uh, oh, she's not gonna be mad about this, it's that I have after this. Uh-huh. A platypus pedagogues call where I'm going to be talking to these people who are teaching reading groups all over the country and she's going to be like, when is that shit going to be yeah. <laughs> like She loves this. <laughs> like, she, doesn't, she never even listened to my the, to the one where you had me on with Phenol. That was good. But she knows how many people watched it.
0: Okay. well, She's uh, like, you've got, be you got
2: this many people. views. That's great. Right? There's,
0: there's, there's going to be a few people. <laughs> I think uh, we're going
3: to uh, beat I, that one today.
1: Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna be. Yes, we are.
0: <laughs> I, I, I want to say this before we go. Thank you guys all for watching. For everyone that's a subscriber, for everyone that hit like, for everyone that's a patron. Thank you, you guys. Make sure that we can do these Saturday free shows. Um usually we go into the champagne room with this, and that would have been two and a half hours. So two and a half mm-hmm. hours of free content. Next week, we'll be celebrating the birthday of our brother Pascal Robert uh he will be 25 for the third time
1: right it's not every day a man turns 25 for the third
0: time and again
2: and again happy birthday pascal
3: thank you special thank you very much it was a very lively chat just realized that it was all in good fun and uh good spirits
2: That's what I'm for, you know. I don't care. I don't want a happy conversation. I want to get into it. That's all. We
0: can have these conversations. I I want to reiterate this. We can have these conversations. Get serious. Be passionate, and not hate one another. I don't think Spencer is my enemy. But you know what, Pascal's enemy is.
2: I I don't understand people who don't like to argue. Really, I've never understood (laughs) them. Right. I've never understood that. Like, I don't know what it is. Some kind of petty bourgeois notion of like politeness or something.
0: Yes. I, yes, that's all that shit is. But look, we, we, we can disagree. We can agree. We can have a very fruitful conversation. I'm definitely going to go read some more so, you know, I can have some citations for that ass Spencer.
2: (laughs) I didn't
0: have any citations for you that. You guys got
2: to have me on when the books come out, right? I gotta, I gotta hold them up. I'm, I've been working yeah. on. Yeah. So yeah. I'd love yeah. that. I'd, I'd be no, great. No, I'm um,
0: again. I, I, I stick by what I said. Um, when I introduced you, you will forget more about Marx than uh, than some of us will learn. So I appreciate you the work that you do. It is it is very important. I think. Reading this was actually very important, and I do, I want to end with this, and it's my show, and I'm going to end with this, God damn it. Part of kayfabe, part of the political burlesque is that sometimes these actors have to tell the truth to really bring you in, and that was, for me, Part of the impetus of this work that I'm doing, this documentary film that I'm putting together with a wonderful young filmmaker, um, uh, is that Trump and and uh, Bernie Sanders, as you pointed out, represented the truth being told about both of their parties for a brief moment. Just for a brief well,
2: moment. No, are I mean, you know, you got to learn from your own time, and you know, one of the things I tell students is everything everyone says is true to some degree there there isn't a way to completely lie about society it's just more or less superficial Mm
0: -hmm. yeah tucson do you have any closing uh comments before i hit the music
1: no this was this was a lively spirited discussion very nutritious
2: (laughs) i want you guys to send me the link to that that documentary that you talked about about the la riots
0: Oh, that I did?
2: Yeah, and I'll send you uh, I Forgot More Than You'll Ever Know About Her by Bob Dylan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Done deal, brother. Pascal, any closing remarks? Birthday boy? I
3: appreciated the, uh, the spirit of the discussion. It was definitely definitely lively.
0: Got him out of that seat. Boy, Pascal just jumped out of that seat real quick. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much. I know there's going to be so much to say in the comments. We're going to be looking at the comments, so please, if you agree, disagree, have some points, think we were wrong, Mm -hmm. let us know in the comments. We are Out. out. Peace.